Russia was the, the Union of Soviet Social Republics. And they'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers. They have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of Pop Life. Yes, took the name of this show from one of my favorite Prince songs. So glad to have you guys here with us live. Also glad to say hello to those who will be watching on the rewatch and listening on audio-only formats as well. Before we start, if you're new to this channel, if you're new to this show, please hit like, please hit subscribe. Of course, hit the notification bell. So you're alerted whenever we go live. We never do Friday shows. Here we are doing a Friday show. That's why the notification bell, that's why subscribing is so important. It's a passive gesture that costs you nothing, and it goes a long way. As always, thank you to all the subscribers on YouTube and Twitch and the audio-only podcast formats where you find us. Also, thanks to all of our patrons collectively. You are the fuel in the engine that keeps TIR moving along. If you're enjoying what we do here, and you'd like to have access to the members-only VIP status of the Champagne Room. Well, there's only one way to become a patron for as little as $2 a month or $3 for the year. It can all be yours. Also, tickets are on sale. And the book is out. My mini book on everyday analysis, I Was a Teenage Anarchist, is out. If you want to See me live, not just me, it's less me and more my friends. I was able to reach out to some friends that were part of the punk, hardcore, and metal scenes in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were in some great bands from Machine Head, Forbidden, Attitude Adjustment, Death, Jesus, uh, Exodus. So we're going to have a little bit of talk about the book, some fun stories from these guys and of course uh, a Q&A in a very cool intimate setting in the San Francisco area wherever you are watching or listening to the show there's links in the description for that let me bring in my guest co-host you've seen this gentleman on the show quite a bit I hope you're watching his show Parallax Views please welcome coming from the swamps JG Michael What's up? The swamps of Florida, yes. Swamps of Florida. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited because uh, I've been talking a lot about Nightmare on Elm Street with my um, my ex-girlfriend lately. She's a big fan of the franchise, so it's been fresh on my mind. And I love the Elm Street movies. So, Is, is this a way to reconnect with your ex? You're like, hey, I was watching Nightmare and just thinking about you. Uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Well, look, being a Gen X kid that grew up unsupervised with bootleg cable, I got over my fear of horror movies by watching horror movies. Tons of them. Mostly alone as my mom worked nights and I was left to my own devices. One of the horror franchises that stuck out to me and my group of friends in Richmond, California, was the wise-cracking Freddy Krueger from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Our guest today, Ben Burgess, wrote a very timely piece that came out on Halloween for Jacobin Magazine about his love for Nightmare on Elm Street as well. This is from Ben's Jacobin piece. From the Reagan era values of the second and third installments to the 1990s meta-commentary of New Nightmare, the franchise displays flashes of the specific cultural moments when each of the installments was born. And it's impossible to talk about the genesis of the franchise as a whole without talking about horrors that are all too real, all too familiar now as we enter the final months of 2023 with wars raging from Ukraine to Palestine. One of several inspirations that came together to give Craven the idea for the first movie was a series of articles he read about nightmare-ridden refugees from Southeast Asia, a region where the terror of the United States war in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and Pol Pot's subsequent genocide had created a lot of refugees. One victim's, victim's father was a doctor who gave him sleeping pills. The son pretended to take them while doggedly keeping himself awake. According to Craven, they had, came, they had come from Southeast Asia, war camps, so the family just assumed he'd been traumatized. But he said, no, no, it's different. There's something stalking me in my dream. When the young man finally fell asleep, Craven recalled his parents carried him upstairs to lay him down in his bed. Relieved, they went to bed themselves and their son started screaming. He died of ulcer causes in his sleep. Later in his closet, his parents found a pot of coffee, a plot device used in the first Nightmare movie. That is from my good friend, Jacobin columnist, you may know him from the host of the Give Them an Argument podcast. You may know him from his various appearances on all the hot shows, and you may know him from always debating shitty right-wingers. Please welcome Ben Burgess. Uh, I like that you... uh... I like that you managed to quote the uh, the three sentences that were actually like um, leftist political. The three paragraphs that were actually leftist political stuff for yeah. that whole article. The rest of it was just kind of like, "Hey, these movies are awesome." That's exactly what I was trying to do. We have to t- we have to be serious people here, Ben. <laughs> Look here, Mister Metallica shirt. Um, I I tagged you on Twitter. Um, I saw that. I remember. I found those articles when i watched for the 18th time never sleep again which i believe is a four and a half hour documentary about every nightmare film and it was done before craven passed away Mm -hmm. and i and i went and did a search and i found that the la times has great archives so does the new york times there's also if, if you are a new york times subscriber they have articles about it too and it became a syndrome um do you guys feel that the true impetus of these movies gets forgotten that syndrome um because every west craven movie that i can think of that's a big movie comes from something real i believe he was a was he a history teacher or an english teacher before he got into movies he was an english teacher but he is still but yeah that he's like a he does still seem to often be inspired by stuff like that 
Uh, we are looking at some mass, a massive refugee crisis from Ukraine to Palestine. And that doesn't even include uh, people fleeing from uh, embargoed countries and climate refugees. Uh, the Sinka syndrome is like Hmong Cambodian death syndrome. Uh, where people are, were dying in their sleep. I guess it still happens to this day. Um, there's nothing more terrifying <laughs> than not being able to get rest in your rest, which is what Freddy represents. I think that gets lost somewhere along the lines of the third movie when he's telling people to fuck the prime time and slamming their faces in televisions, which was the only thing I remembered from the movie theater when me and my friends got to got to watch it lying about our age um how do you guys see you know jg i'll start with you you always have a lot to say about this kind of stuff um do you think we've forgotten the real terror of freddy krueger yeah i would say in some ways i mean freddy becomes very much a comedy character especially by you know what freddy's dead he's basically a cartoon character in the sixth movie uh I do think one aspect that made the Nightmare films resonate with younger people in the 80s was that, uh, and this is sort of a, a socio-political subtext, but really the, the thread between all the movies is, um, you know, the, the sins of the father fall on the sons and the daughters. Uh, and not only that, but really there are movies about parents that don't really want to listen to their children. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's what makes them so resonant, especially for teenagers, because it's like, you know, none of the parents in these movies ever listen to the kids, you know. So I, I think that's like the key to, I would say, the first five nightmare films is the fact that they really are movies about, you know, it, it's sort of like the same theme, same theme you see in um, the classic Christian Slater movie, uh, Heather's. You know, parents not listening to their kids. And for me, that's the biggest takeaway I get from the Nightmare movies. Ben? Yeah, I, I mean, to your point about uh, Freddy's Dead, uh, I I think, I don't think this made it into the final version. I think this was uh, cut by the uh, suits at Jacobin, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think this was cut in edits, but, uh, but I did originally have a line about how Freddy's Dead was the movie that sort of saw the full Bugs Bonification of uh or so you know the full um uh yeah full bugs bonification of uh of freddy krueger right you know that like the way that he's sort of laying you know he's like doing wisecracks as he's like laying traps and you know it's like he might as well be chewing on a carrot uh while he's, <laughs> while he's doing it uh, but the the point that jg just made is interesting because you know thinking about it the only ones um you know, out of the original movies, uh, the you know those first six sort of in-universe Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, number six is basically the only one where the main character isn't uh, a teenager, right? I mean that they that like there's it's a you know it's a lot of the movies following around teenagers, but I mean the the woman who works at the um, at the I don't know. I don't really know what that's supposed to be. It's like a halfway house or something for, uh, you know, troubled teens. But the woman who works there, you know, to, well, do lots of spoilers here. You know, Freddie's daughter, it turns out, mm-hmm. uh, is, um, you know, is probably 
the you know the closest thing that movie has to like a clear protagonist and she's like she's in her 30s or something um you know i I guess number three uh nancy is decent amount of the movie is following her around and she's older now but still she's all about the dream warriors in three man (laughs) yeah yeah, that's the title, right? Uh, How so. about the song? <laughs> With the Dream Warriors. Yeah, I think a line that actually did make it into the final, you know, uh, version is that like I I couldn't write about it without having that song go through my head. I saw uh, that. <laughs> but, but yeah, like and and even even to the extent that it is falling around Nancy. I mean, she's still, you know, I think they say she's a graduate student at one point in the movie, mm. but, you know, she's still a younger person who is having trouble getting the adults who actually have power to uh, to believe what she's saying. So that's the theme. Adults don't listen to young people, even if they are graduate students that are doing <laughs> some remarkable work in dream studies. <laughs> yeah, hotshot grad student. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think it is a theme. I mean, I think that there is, like, just sort of, look, I mean, I think as goofy as those movies get, especially as they go on, I mean, like, there are some pretty basic fears that they're playing with. And I think one of them is just, like, look, it's it's just sort of innately scary to think about um, kids, even if they're teenagers, whose parents can't protect them from the things that threaten them. I mean, that's just sort of fundamentally scary. And it's, like, so all this stuff about how, like the parents, you know, with the best intentions in the world are always trying to get you to get some rest. Definitely ties into that. Well, Kristen's parents are there. Was it, is there a name? Kristen? Um, in the fourth and fifth movie. Well, she's a different person in four, but she's in, she's in three. Yeah. Three and four. She's the one who didn't come back. Yeah. Uh, her mom. Yeah, I, I always mix her and Alice up. But, yeah. Uh, uh, easy, easy mistake. Easy mistake. They all look alike. Um, what were you trying to say, JG? You were trying to you jump in there. Oh, I was going to say, uh, you know, maybe we could revisit it later on in the conversation. I know a lot of people will say, I mean, and I'm not saying these movies aren't goofy, especially the sequels, but I think people forget there's stuff in those sequels that it gets really dark at times, you know, especially like a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street 5. I mean, they're dealing with issues like bulimia in that. And like, you know, I think the fourth one, uh, deals with like having an alcoholic father and they deal with some they get pretty dark at times in well, there's weird a lot ways. of suicide stuff even in dream warriors yeah well they're all kids that are in a in an institution yeah right that are all suicidal um for various reasons and freddie becomes the thread but they're all there for different reasons right well yes and no i mean i think that they're they're all there um i think that they all have different issues that freddie is using to try to get at them. But I mean, like a big thing early in the movie is like, and part of their frustration with the adults who run the place, not taking it seriously is like, you should be more impressed by the fact that we're all dreaming about the same guy. Right. Like, the best part of three is when uh, the doctors have, they're having their group session. And I, I'm not going to lie. I do get three and bad dreams confused. Cause there's a, there's a similar actress and the theme of bad dreams is similar. Um, but when Nancy walks in the room and she goes, and he's got, she's got that accent and he's got knives for fingers. She tries to cover up her accent. She's so funny. <laughs> Heather Langenkamp's accent is so, I think she's from Kansas or something. And he's got a big brown hat. And they're like, oh. And it's like, 
and no one goes how the fuck did you know that the one doctor goes kind of hey, hey how the f-? but he says it kind of matter of fact like oh how the fuck did you know that yeah uh, it's just people, a they're, they're not nearly as surprised as they should be that she has the exact details down to the fact that she can finish the rhyming song that like the the girl they're trying to yeah. like you know calm down started that's like that she knows exactly how this song that she's singing ends it's like well like how could you possibly know that like it, other than what turns out to be true in the world of this movie they don't they don't yeah they don't seem to care about their kids but the first movie which which is a which is a thing right because it's like like thematically just because it's like i mean okay there's obviously a, a, a very not real example but like there's but you know, just the sort of general sense that all, for a lot of adults, a lot of things that the kids might be going through are uh, that are like traumatic or you know upsetting, whatever, might just be like annoyances. Like you know, like I, I just want you to take care of your shit and stop bothering me with it. Like, That's I mean, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> there's TV and there's at least 45 channels, kid. I don't want to hear your shit. JG doesn't know this, Ben, because JG came up in the 90s with parents that listened to him. <laughs> he had those parents that were like, uh, how do you feel? Oh, shit. What was that uh, like? God. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, man. He came home from school and they wanted to help him with his homework. <laughs> I'm like one of those regular dumb parents. It's like, look, kid, I can help you to the fourth grade. Once you start doing long division, you are on your own, buddy. <laughs> Helping him with his homework, asking him how he feels. Yeah. If there's like a demonic force that's stalking him in his dreams, you know, they'll like listen to him about it. You got to sleep with your child. You got to be like, hey, uh, are you scared? Do you need a nightlight? You know, better than that, how about you just get me and then me and you will watch cartoons all night? How's that sound? Uh, fuck yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm that. I'm that dad. And I think parents of the of the younger generation were more they they knew the flaws of their own parents. Like think about our parents wanted to hug us a little bit more than their shitty parents that didn't even know what a teenager was because it didn't exist in their day. So everybody was a piece of shit. So JG had them parents that he hugged him. Look at him. That's why he's always smiling. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're giving my parents too much. Man. His dad was like Buffalo Bill. <laughs> wow. and she's like, I can't relate to this nightmare movie. I'm. <laughs> my family loved me. You you are right though about the uh, the first nightmare movie and the whole parental element. I always think yeah. that. Uh, John, both John Saxon and um, Ronnie Blackley, uh, both of whom were like name actors at that time. Mm-hmm. They're really the only names in the movie. Uh, you know, I, I think they don't get enough credit because, you know, John Saxon is just kind of, you know, he's the cop that's off doing his own thing and he doesn't know how to deal with his daughter. And then Ronnie is basically just a wine mom. You know, there is this whole like um, dark side of suburbia aspect to the first nightmare movie that I really love. I uh, feel like a lot of those new left guys, and I, I would love to know uh, a slight divergence from nightmare, uh, but not really a lot of those new left guy, Toby Hooper, 
does it uh, with uh, with Poltergeist. Definitely the nightmare movies all take place in suburbia. Carpenter does it with Halloween. I feel like they really thumb their nose at the idea of the nuclear family in suburbia mm-hmm. with with the the dark like as you're saying the dark side of suburbia these these suburban nightmares everything in the, and then then it becomes a trope sadly uh, where everything has to take place in, in a suburb until you get to candy man um what do you think about that uh jg yeah i think that's on point i mean i i think you know that's like the whole point of the the first big slasher movie everyone always references right halloween. john carpenter's halloween mm-hmm. like the whole the whole point of john carpenter's halloween is, is is like oh you know this is happening in the suburb and we don't know why we don't know why he became a killer you know mm-hmm. and i, yeah. I think that really uh yeah, really really drawn these. out by the the contrast to uh the uh the dumbass rob zombie remake don't get into it with me man so, i love that movie you know okay wow okay uh that's uh all right guys i just i just remembered i had a different time commitment uh so <laughs> <laughs> but it's like no come on i mean zombie you know like he's like oh well shit there has to be an explanation i mean something must have fucked him up uh what, what could it be you know what i know i know what it could be his parents were fucked up rednecks right. That's, that, that's you know, the one that's the one aspect of the zombie movies I don't like. I like the second one because it feels like a weird David Lynch movie at times. Because he hates rednecks. JG, just admit it. <laughs> Rob Zombie fucking hates rednecks. I, don't, I know you don't want to believe it. I know you fucking listen to Thunder Kiss 66 as you're tucking yourself <laughs> in at night. But the motherfucker hates rednecks. We're, we're doing a whole show on this. I'm going to make my case for <laughs> pro redneck. No, watch the movie 31. It's a pro redneck movie. Okay, okay. I'm sure I'm sure there's people in there fucking their cousin in there just to make sure he gets <laughs> real good incest in there. Yeah. I refuse to believe that Rob Zombie has anything nice to say about the white working class. But like uh put it aside, it's my fault because I brought it up. Uh but put it aside uh Rob Zombie's uh deep hatred of working class people in middle America. Uh there's also um like it's um like, like it is, it is a useful contrast, right? Because it's like, okay, um, that one, it's the opposite of a kid in the suburbs inexplicably uh, being evil. It's a kid who, you know, explicably becomes evil because his, you know, his his parents, you know, uh, are fucked up rednecks and you know whatever. That's all the stuff we were just talking about. But in the um, but stuff like Halloween, right? Yeah, that's that's the scary thing about it. So it's like, I mean, I, I see what Jason's saying. I mean, in a way, it is thumbing his nose at the suburbs, but it's also um, the, the whole premise also relies on, like, you know, you have to start out sort of thinking of the suburbs as this very safe place. Otherwise, the, the contrast isn't scary. It's, it's like the anti-Leave it to Beaver. Uh, it was a war on beaver these are all people that grew up on beaver they probably were beaver right let's be honest and they fucking hate leave it to beaver and this is what you get and i don't know if craven hated leave it to beaver and i think that's why his movies uh, are a little different i mean wes is a bit weird because my understanding is that wes grew up in like a really strict baptist family yes i don't know if he was allowed to watch tv but he did not watch movies until he went to college yeah he's not he, he doesn't seem to be the same kind of 
movie guy that Carpenter and Hooper are in that regard. And, and he does have a big catalog. And I think because he passed away so soon, people kind of released all this made for TV stuff Ugh. on DVD. Like I've, I've seen it all. And, and I've seen deadly friend like a million and five times. Um, <laughs> that scene with the basketball <laughs> that whole movie is worth the scene for the basketball it might as well have been a made for tv film in my opinion deadly Friend. But, but yeah Wes craven seems like he had the kind of upbringing that you know if he'd been uh you know if he'd been born in a later generation than he was he would have been one of, the, one of those kids who wasn't allowed to watch he-man because he-man falsely claims to be <laughs> Uh, that's like it's that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, so is anyone, I want to know: is anyone watching the show right now? Please leave a comment if you're watching the show right now and you have one of those parents that wouldn't let you watch. He <laughs> <laughs> man, I, I do. That's a real. I had a friend, Ben. You might have. You might even have been this guy. His parents told him you can either pick Cobra stuff or GI Joe mm-hmm. stuff, but you can't have both because you can't that's have fighting. Funny. That's so, funny. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't fight yeah, it. Kind of the opposite uh, issue, but yeah. Just building up your war chest. <laughs> JG's like, I didn't have toys. <laughs> I just had my wrestling action figures. <laughs> if you had wrestling action figures, you know what that means? Nobody wanted to play with you. Because your toys didn't fit in anybody's playset. Wow. Once you came with like, hey guys, what is like, no, you can't. There's no articulation, JG. <laughs> so so I have to I have to get to this. I was gonna ask you guys some questions and I put some questions through chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't know you could do that. And they're really funny. So <laughs> I asked Chad GPT to give me questions for a podcast about Nightmare on Elm Street through a left lens. Okay, nice. And this is one of the questions. In what ways can Freddy Krueger be seen as a symbol for the oppressive forces in society? Jesus Christ. How do they embody fears related to authority figures and societal norms? You should ask it for the 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 JFK connection to the Elm Street. <laughs> I'm not joking. Elm Street was where where Kennedy died. There's probably a conspiracy theory about. Oh it. Oh my God! I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> I wish I would have thought of that. Here, Ben, you're gonna love this. How do the later films? Dallas, like every other town, has an Elm Street. Every town, <laughs> every city has an Elm Street. So we have to get to this. This is a serious question here. Oh. Ben, ben Burgess and I. In the dumbest way possible, I shouldn't. Yeah, it's, it was just silly. It was, it was, we, we, we were trying to figure out which Freddy movie because we didn't remember had the pizza scene where the souls were the where the pepperoni. Elm Street for Dream Master. Yep. The, the particularly funny thing about this is that's the first one we watched while trying to figure this out. But I think we both fell asleep on the couch yes. during that scene yes. and didn't realize that it was in there. So we were so like we we're like, oh shit, was it five? <laughs> <laughs> We watched five. They were like, I guess we got to watch six. So we watched them all. We watched them all. Yeah. I mean, by that point, I think we'd realized the thing. It was just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's just keep watching and go around, you know, in a circle. So it was, but we had to go into a, an actual 
okay, what goes in what order? We watch the the Freddy vs. Jason, and then we watch the remake, and then we watch the originals. Um, ben Burgess is not a fan of the second one. He hates the second one like the second one <laughs> kicked him in the kicked his dog in the fucking face. <laughs> he hates the second one. And it's not necessary to hate the second one that much. Can you talk about your hate for the second one, Ben? Okay, well, I think you're exaggerating how much I hate it, but uh, I do think it's a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, what I said in the article is that obviously Wikipedia didn't exist in 1985, but it feels like about the movie that you would make if you skimmed the Wikipedia entry for the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, got bored halfway through and cobbled together a plot based on like what you glean from that. Like it just didn't seem to kind of realize anything really about what made the first uh, good or interesting. Uh, like the thing that's interesting about the second one is that it's, um, it's got all of this like very, you know, certainly watching it now, it feels like this just very over the top obvious, uh, gay analogy right that's the that uh so the the plot of the movie which is like okay earlier we were talking about the suburbs and you know there is something interesting if you think about the the line from halloween in 78 where uh the slasher is in the suburbs to you know a couple years later right there's the uh uh first uh friday the 13th where uh people are being slashed out in the woods which is scary in a different way not because of like the contrast with the safe place, but just because like, you know, there's nobody around. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, then it's, it's inside your head, right? It's in your dreams, which is interested in a different way. And it's this sort of strange kind of floaty, like slasher fairy tale almost. Uh, except that number two isn't like that at all. I mean, it really has barely anything to do with dreams. The whole thing is that, uh, Freddy Krueger is uh, possessing this kid, um, and there's a lot of really over-the-top analogizing between the Freddy possessing him and and homosexuality. I mean, that's that's you know pretty on the surface. Uh, I remember you know years and years ago, my friend Richard always called that one the Rainbow Nightmare. And uh, then when I watched that documentary you mentioned earlier, um, the four and a half hour one, I've only seen it once, but I have seen. You know, I, I kind of watched it, I think, you know, while exercising stuff over the course of a few days, you know, when it first came out. Uh, that's, um, you know, that that's like very explicitly confirmed, like that's what we had in mind, whatever. And um, and so so, OK, so there are two issues here. One is just like evaluating it as a movie, like forget the subtext, all that stuff, just like as a movie. And I've got to say, I don't really see anything that's like good or compelling about it. I mean, just visually, it's just kind of not fun to even look at. It's uh, it's got um, again, it takes away the whole dreamy aspect of Nightmare on Elm Street uh, with this weird possession plot. Um, it's it's just I don't know. There's just something like really weird and unpleasant about the viewing experience. But then like. Then if you're going to say, okay, no, 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 well, forget whether it's a good movie. It's like an interested movie because of the gay analogy. Okay, fair enough. Let's talk about the gay analogy because uh, this, you know, I understand that, you know, just because like, you know, people like, 
you know, I think I get why, you know, there's something campy and fun about some of it. I, I think I get why it has a certain gay cult following, but like also like, I don't know, pretty much everything about the way that analogy is handled seems pretty wildly homophobic. I mean, like maybe I'm missing something here, but like, uh, the, the, the fact in itself, right. That Freddie's been, you know, possession by Freddy Krueger has been analogized to homosexuality seems maybe not great. And then, uh, again, we said we're spoiling left and right here. Um, uh, the, at the end of the movie, uh, he's essentially saved from the uh freddie possession by the love of his girlfriend it's like okay well that doesn't seem like a very subtle you know analogy there so um and i understand that like almost every movie it ends with like a little like ah maybe he's not gone totally you know but like they all end that way that doesn't mean anything um so you know it, it seems like you know it seems like if you're kind of looking at it through this political lens then it's like well this is like just kind of this like mod testament to reagan era uh homophobia if you're looking at it just as a movie it's like yeah this doesn't you know it doesn't feel like a nightmare on elm street movie it doesn't feel like it includes or captures anything that makes those unusually interesting movies interesting jg i'm sure you have a lot to say about this um i like the second elm street movie but i also I take a certain weird joy in watching really mean-spirited horror movies, and that movie is very mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. Freddy is—I yeah. I think Freddy is more brutal in that than in the other ones. You know, he's just very yeah. like—he's dark in that one, man. You know, um, so there's things I like about it aesthetically, but I, I think Ben is right. It really is like the black sheep. Uh, of the the franchise because it doesn't feel like it fits and you know eventually they basically ignore it in part three you know so i mean it's a very odd movie i actually refuse to believe that that movie was originally written as an elm street movie i think they, <laughs> i think it's what they did with the hellraiser uh sequels a lot of those hellraiser sequels that came out in the 90s with pinhead they started out as scripts for entirely different movies yep. and uh the weinsteins were like Oh no! Uh, we'll just tack in Pinhead at the at the end of it, you know. That's how we'll keep the rights longer, you know. And I I feel like something was going on with Elm Street too. Well, the the director, so the writer of the movie, you would have had to change so little of it to make it not an Elm Street right. movie. Like essentially almost none of it. I mean, there's just like there's a house and there's some sort of demonic something or other in the house that's possessing people. That's it, right? There's like almost nothing about dreams in that movie. It's uh, it's just yeah, it it just it just feels like this very separate thing, you know? Like yeah, I mean, you literally have Freddy jump out into the real world during a pool party and do a massacre. pool party scene. Look for me, the pool party scene could have they could have kept that. If you take the pool party scene out of that movie, for me, it's a pretty good movie. I was terrified of the trailer of that Mm. movie. When uh, they would show the trailer for that on cable, I don't know how, it must have been like eight or nine. And the the scene they would show is where Freddy goes, you've got the body, I got the brains, and he rips his head back. To JG's point, it's... Something in the chat points out makes it sound like Freddy's going to be pimping him out. A little bit. Or he's a big Pet Shop Boys fan. <laughs> but JG's not amused. He's not a Pet Shop Boys fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, there is a he's he is a lot meaner in that movie, and that movie to me is 
frightening. There's a scene I was cooking today, playing part two. And I was like, let me watch part two and get ready for Ben and his fucking persnickety ass fucking part two hating ass. And I was cooking and it's, it's on in the background. And the scene where he runs to his homies, <laughs> when he runs to his homies house <laughs> after he's supposed to have sex with his girlfriend. Yeah, and his friend is, is like, what, what are you doing here? There's what are you doing for you? <laughs> but, but the scene where Freddy comes out of the dude and or Freddy comes out of the main character and then kills uh. him, and you hear these blood-curdling screams, and he's yelling for his father. I was, I've seen that movie too many times, and I was cooking in the kitchen. You know the layout of my house. Yeah. I can't really see the TV, and I was like, God damn, that it's, I got goosebumps just like listening to it because I was like, that's so frightening. Go, JG. I was going to say, uh, if I could, the weirdest thing for me about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, because I've met the director, um, Jack Shoulder, and Jack's actually underrated as a horror movie director. He did uh, the hit him with Kyle MacLachlan and one of my favorite slasher movies, Alone in the Dark from 1982, which okay. is actually a really interesting and much more political movie than people realize. It's an asylum slasher movie. But it kind of argues that, you know, maybe the, the inmates are actually less crazy than everyone on the outside. Um, but I think that movie is the least interesting movie I've seen of his in ways that the Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Um, I don't I, I think Ben's right in a lot of ways about his assessment of it. The thing that always got me, though, when I talked to Jack Shoulder, he's like, I didn't notice any of the gay subtext. And I'm, That's I'm, he said I'm, he did. So he doubled down on it in the in the movie. Because he didn't that? know. He, he didn't realize the gay subtext. So it's like, yeah, let's kill the PE teacher with balls to the ass. Yeah, well, that, that's what I was going to say. I'm like, there's literally a gay S&M bar in it. It's, it's, yeah. it's a scene right out of William Freakin's Cruising. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what? how do you not notice this, Jack? Are you kidding me? And he's, he, he will, to this day, if you ask him, he'll say, I didn't realize that was... The, okay. the dance, the dance was like, hey, we want you to do the thing like um, Tom Cruise in uh, Risky Business. Can you do like a Tom Cruise Risky Business kind of dance in your in your underwear? Again, I get the dude is oblivious to it. It's just everything that he thought to do, they just made it so much more gay. Right. When he runs out, when he's about to hit it, his girlfriend for the first time, and he goes, I got to go to Grady's house. You're like, word? Like that was the first thing on your mind? Because right. I'm not thinking about Ben Burgess when I'm. <laughs> right. I, I take great comfort in that. Uh, yeah. What are Ben's doing? Is he okay? <laughs> How's Lucy? <laughs> it the the movie is though for me. Like I said, out of um. All the movies I've seen of uh, the, that director, right. Jack Shoulder, it is kind of the least interesting for me. It's it's not as subversive as some of his other films. I feel like that is the ultimate sort of like Reaganite horror movie. Fear the gays, you know. The title card is horrible. Oh, yeah. If you watch that movie, when the title card comes on the screen, you're like, ooh, is this a made-for-TV movie? Yeah, I will say, uh, you know, finding one nice thing to say about this movie, the poster is really good. Uh, they use that. The as poster a is amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The the poster is great. Now look, we 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 got to get our stuff out on part two. There's like 15 movies in this damn franchise. 
we have to talk about part three, which is everyone's favorite. The Dream Warriors! I, I hate to disappoint you, but that is not my favorite Elm Street movie. That's uh, it's it's definitely not mine either, but I I do like it a lot. It's I I think it's like I always tell people Elm Street three is Elm Street one, but with a much bigger budget. It's it's the spectacle, you know, of the Elm Street yeah. franchise in my view. Yeah, Freddy gets to be a wisecracking guy and scary. Go ahead. right. Yeah, I mean for like whatever my ranking would be, like one is up here and then like somewhere you know like it's like. And then number seven would be, you know, the uh, new nightmare would be number two. And then, um, then you know, I, I, I do think number three would be number three. But the uh, but uh, but I, I actually find it interesting how many people have that as their favorite Elm Street movie, because, look, I like it a lot uh, out of the original in-universe sequels. So not counting new nightmare. I mean, it's definitely my favorite of those. Right. But like the to me, the gap between number one and all of the sequels. So number three, you know, I think there's a huge drop off between one and three, and then an, then an even bigger drop off between three and the rest of them. But like in, um, you know, I, I mean, number one, I mean, to my mind, I mean, that's like one of the best horror movies ever made. That's, uh, you know, that's like kind of the platonic ideal of a slasher movie. Um, and and I. I guess I find it really interesting how many people uh, will say, you know, cause I've, you know, every time I've like kind of posted about this or whatever, I'll always get somebody who volunteers this opinion, you know, how many people, will say, <laughs> uh, you know, which probably came out differently than I meant it. I'm, I mean, I'm, no, I love the way you said it. No, don't fucking take <laughs> it back at all. But, uh, but you know, people will always say that and I'm always surprised by it. Right. Cause it's like, Best sequel? Sure, absolutely. I mean, even if you said best sequel periods, so you're including New Nightmare, I would disagree. I think New Nightmare is even better, but I would understand that, right? But like, um, but the best one period seems crazy to me because number one is so good, and it seems like it's on this, you know, entirely different level than anything that came after it, to me at least. And you know, I think the best theory I heard about this was uh, my friend Dave Hewitt, who's a writer, who said. Uh, he compared it to the way that a lot of people uh, like uh, T2 better than the original Terminator. And uh, in both cases, it's like, you're talking about a movie that's still very good. Right. Uh, but it's, but part of it, and this, this is, I think that, you know, that like cultural ambiance about like the Reagan in the eighties, the morning in America era does become relevant again here is that, I think I think a big part of it, this is David, you know, Dave Hewitt's view is that people are responding to the optimism, right? That there's a, there's a sort of, um, you know, that there's something that's like a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. There's like a, there's a little bit more of an unambiguous feeling of, of victory over the bad guys. Although obviously in both cases, it doesn't last until the next movie. Right. But like, um, and you know, when we get to number four, the way that it's undone in there is very, very funny, but like in, uh, you know, but I, I think that's what people are responding to. Cause just to like, just as like a matter of like, which is a better movie. I, I, I don't understand it. I, I I'm, think, I think the appeal of that movie, no, I, I'm sorry. No, Jason, I just want to no, say no, real quick. I think the appeal of the movie is each of the dream warriors in that movie, the teens, 
I think there's someone you can relate to. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite will always be, I loved Taryn growing up. I had a huge crush on Taryn. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm bad and beautiful in my dreams. You know, yeah. I think there's something that just resonates with like young people to watch that movie. They, they each have their own favorite, you know? Yeah. I, I, yes, I, I still have a bit of a crush on that woman. So if, if I found out she lived near Ben in LA, I would accidentally go to his house on purpose a lot more to have donuts. <laughs> <clears throat> But 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 seriously, um, I went to the theater to see three, and there was so much hype around three. I like that in this fantasy, she's just hanging out at the grimy donut shop next to my apartment. You never know where you're going to actually run into the future Mrs. Miles. <laughs> um, you live in a place where there's a lot of people that are famous to me, but not famous to anyone else. So, I'm Fair enough. Uh yeah so <laughs> I, I, I just want to say I was Ugh. I remember the hype around two movies yeah very vividly and how entrenched they were in pop culture and it's Nightmare on Elm Street three way more so than two and Terminator two and I think Terminator two was what like seven years eight years oh. after the first one um. So people kind of forgot the first one. You know the first one. But by the time Terminator 2 comes out and Guns N' Roses has the song, and they're the biggest band in the world, kind of the same thing with, with Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Dokken wasn't the biggest band in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But there was a song for this movie. There was a massive MTV campaign for this movie. I think around the time Part 3 comes out is when Freddy's phone line comes out, his 1-800 number comes out. So he becomes kind of... A marketing phenomenon and i'm a preteen at this point and this movie is resonating with people in my age cohort that it's the thing that we have to go see and it's for us but it's not really for us but it's mm -hmm. for us right so you know monster squad is way more for us than nightmare on elm street 3 is but i don't remember anyone that went to the theater to go see, and I love Monster Squad. Uh, but when I th when I think of Part Three and I think of Terminator Two, you, the analogy you you have in your piece, I think that's so true because the way those two movies kind of took over pop culture, like I'll Be Back, is Terminator yeah. One. That's the first one, but we remember it from the sequel. There's so much stuff that he says in the sequel that people think is like, can it? Like, it's only from that one they don't go back and watch the first one because the first one moves different than the rest of those movies because the first one's a horror film. So it moves like a horror film. So if you're not really a horror fan, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to, it doesn't have a score full of rock bands. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a totally different movie. So when you watch the first nightmare, which, isn't the biggest budget film, but they uh, still make things work, right? It's still frightening. By the time you get to the third, it's not really frightening, but it's fun. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a fun popcorn movie that you can't just replicate because up until that point, I would say from Black Christmas to that moment, 1987, killers don't talk. They wear a mask. 
They stalk you in the woods, maybe the suburbs, but usually the woods. And they don't... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, it is interesting. I've been watching a lot of videos about the Halloween movies lately because, uh, like, the Joe Blow horrors put out a bunch of them, and I, I don't know, I just recently watched uh, H2O again, and so I was watching some stuff about that. And uh, and it is always funny that, like, all the every video about a Halloween movie, it's like, oh, yeah, Michael was played by a stuntman, such and such. It's like, yeah, it's always, like, literally <laughs> yeah. a stuntman behind the mask. It, like, doesn't even have to be an actor. Um, whereas, you know, whereas Freddy just is Robert England, uh, as which the, which the remake made very clear, you know, when we get to that, but, um, but yeah, no, totally. Like, and even at the first one, right. I mean, there are flashes of what the character is going to become right in the first movie. There's the, like most obviously the thing with the tongue and the phone and the, mm-hmm. you know, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Like, that's a very, like, that's a very, like, later freddy thing but that's still but, yeah but he's still he's still so terrifying in the first one i mean yeah. just the scene where he uh you know the rotating bedroom yeah. scene that, that image is always going to be stuck in my where he's like dragging her across the ceiling totally. Whereas, the, I think movies, in the, the first movie, two movies i'm telling you the first two movies have two of the most frightening kills in all of the nightmare series except for new but they redo it in new nightmare pretty much yeah the right. tina murder and then when you see Tina's body in the hallway, totally scares the hell out of you when you're a kid. Yep. And part two, cool, which yep. comes out of the guy, and, and Scott, every time we talk about the part two, and then he kills dude, and dude's screaming for his dad. Those, to me, are the two most frightening kills in that movie. Well, well so what I was going to say is that I think that the, uh, there, are the, there are these flashes in one of what he's going to become, but for the most part, he's actually pretty quiet in one. Like, he has a few lines, but, like, he's... He's mostly just kind of skulking around, like smiling in a creepy way. There's like creepy visual effects going on. He's scraping his claws against the uh, the radiator, uh, all of that stuff, right? Like he's he's not, you know, like by the time like number three is really where they introduce the character that he kind of stays for like the you know up through <laughs> number six, you know, I mean where he's like literally saying shit like it's prime welcome to primetime bitch before he kills somebody you know i mean that that is you know i mean that's really where he's coming into his own and that and like look don't get me wrong i enjoy watching that guy i mean like if you have you know like i think like i don't know like number five right the dream child i think that's like one of the weaker ones but it's like if you know next time i'm in rosarito or you're in la if you're like hey ben let's let's order pizza and watch nightmare on elm street five be like absolute goddamn (laughs) go jay I was just going to say about uh, Dream Warriors, I do think it sets the tone and tenor for the series. Um, And not only that, but the first movie is actually a very unusual movie because the tropes aren't all set that time. You know, when I first saw the original Nightmare, I thought Tina was going to be the main character, you know, and, you, you know, she's gone after the first act, really. But you don't know that at first, Uh, whereas you watch Psycho, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you watch you watch Dream Warriors, and I think it's made very clear early on, you know, Kristen is the main character. Uh, I also think it's interesting, too, because I don't know if you guys knew this, but the original Nightmare on Elm Street, before it got into production and whatnot, you know, Disney was interested in that yep. movie. Yeah, and, and I understand why, because there is this weird fairy tale element to oh, it, right. especially the original ending, which was supposed to be you know, she banishes Freddy. She realized he has yeah, no power, said and all her friends are alive. And she's like Night- uh, Nightmare on Elm Street one, and again, yeah. 
you know, new nightmare also in a different way, but it's like nightmare on Elm street right. one is like essentially like a slasher fairy tale, right? It's, it's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. And I had Disney picked it up. They would have, they would have changed it. It wouldn't have the slasher yeah. elements, but I could see why Disney was interested. Hey, to Disney, it's a coming of age. Disney deal. did, uh, uh, pretty woman, which was also a very different film. <laughs> they got there. Hey, they did some dark, like, children's horror back in the... Watcher in the Woods, man. Yeah. Black culture. Um, but, yeah, I mean, number, uh, you know, number three... Actually, actually, by the way, did you watch uh, that, that video I sent you about it, Jason? It's the... Uh, it was, Joe uh, Blow. Yeah, it was Joe Blow. They've made, they've made a few videos about it, but this was the one that I think was their... It's in their, like, w, WTF Happened To series yeah. right for it. Uh, which includes uh, two things that I are both amazing that I hadn't known about number three, both of them about Robert England. Uh, one, uh, he apparently had this whole, like, I don't think he got a script. He had like a treatment at least for like his proposal for nightmare mm-hmm. and Elm street three. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, and he's like, yeah, they probably didn't want it. Cause I re- didn't really want to know how really didn't know how to end it. So I went, I went all Cronenberg for the ending and I don't know what that means, but I really, <laughs> I really want to know, right? Like I really want to watch body whatever, horror. Body whatever, horror. whatever England's idea was. But, um, the other, the other thing, uh, was just the detail about the, uh, apparently when he was uh, partying with doc and, uh, he, uh, everybody, uh, everybody snorted Coke off of his, uh, knife, uh, finger knives. Not surprised. Uh, also I'll be interviewing Tom Warman in two weeks. Yes. Producer of that doc and record, my favorite Van Halen album, fair warning. Uh, my second favorite Motley Crue record, shout at the devil. So I'm so excited to ask all the drug questions. Um, but there is something interesting about part three and I want to get your guys' opinion. If you think this is why they really start going by the wayside because part three has so many comical elements in it and they are bringing in this younger crowd. I can't, I, I don't know if the movies are PG 13 at this point or not, because PG 13 isn't a rating until 1984. So the first one definitely was R. Um, and I don't know if, Part two is RPG thirteen either because that was like eighty five I think when that comes out. Yeah, it's uh, Temple Temple of Doom, right? That's why they did the yep. uh, yep. the PG thirteen because it's like it was like Burger King and shit was promoting it because it's like oh it's PG and it's like wow this Golima. is <laughs> very not appropriate for children. We, we've said this on the show before. Anyone watching the show or listening to the show, please go back and watch any pre nineteen eighty four PG movies you're going to be surprised of what a PG movie is. Um, that that being I was going to say that's even true. You mentioned Monster Squad. I remember showing that to a group of middle schoolers uh, that I was like babysitting, and I forgot there's nudity in yep. that movie. Yep. <laughs> it's, it, PG before, is, before 84 is very different. Uh, go back and watch a PG movie from the 70s. But um, – because they're bringing in younger people, and I and the merchandising starts in '87, right? Um, there becomes a Freddy doll and all this other stuff. Uh, Caligula got a PG rating in the '70s, you know. Did it? No, it didn't. It didn't. Are you sure? I'm sh- I'm sure it didn't. I, I mean, I guess I don't know, but I'm sure. It didn't. Dude, there's some PG <laughs> like, that's that's a a, lot of hits in this PG movie. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, like, so, so number three is like an interesting transitional fossil. Cause like you said, it does set the template for the rest of the, the series, but it also is big, you know, even though Craven had less to do with the final product than I'd assumed for many years, like he wrote a draft of the script and they like kept like some things from it, but it's like really dramatically different what, what it ended up being, but still, you know, you can feel his presence in there a little bit. Like it is, it, it is, it does actually feel like it's about dreams in the way that the first does and the, you know, new nightmare does. And honestly, most of the rest of it really doesn't. Uh, but uh, so, so, it, and it does have in a, in, a, in a different way. I mean, to JJ's point earlier, it does, you know, in a weird way, number three is also a fairy tale in a way that like none of the movies afterwards, except for new nightmare were. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it felt like if you go back and and I'm sure you've gone back and watched it, but when I was watching it, cause I watched it recently by myself and I was like, you know, when I think about how excited me and my friend group was to watch this, it was like movies made for us. And then they, they pumped out the next one, the next year, they're just a like year after year. They're just pumping them out, pumping them out, pumping them out. And these movies got way less scary and way more over the top. And I think that's because they're selling it to a much younger audience. Do you think that's part of it or you don't think so? I have a controversial take if we're going to get into Elm Street 4 and 5. Go for it. So I would say I think Nightmare and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So the first movie and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, I think, are above and beyond in terms of quality, uh, the best ones. But my favorites are actually the fourth movie and the fifth movie. Although I will only watch – I, I like the fifth movie so much that I have the laser disc. Oh, wow. Because yeah, I will not watch the cut version. You hug your children. I, I won't watch the cut version. I The uncut version of Nightmare on Elm Street 5 is really good. It's it's a lot darker than people realize if you see the uncut version. But, do, uh, do, you, do you happen to know if the uh, the like one that was in like the DVD box set is the uncut one? No, it only got released on laser okay. disc. Okay. Jesus Christ. That that it's it's really dark, like the bulimia stuff in it, and all. I mean, it's a dark. It's very gothic in a weird way. Yeah. I really adore the fifth movie. The fourth one is my favorite. Everyone's always like docking in part three, and I'm like, no nah, man, drama rama in part four. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'll do anything, well, anything. Well, anything. I, I do. I, I do want to talk about that, but let let's let's do let's do a little bit more Dream Warriors, uh, so we can okay we could give uh the Dream Master uh, number four uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's proper. Dream. Yeah, don't don't leave out. I just I I wanted to talk about Dream Master, so I hope we can yeah, get yeah, to no, it. Oh no. yeah, we're gonna get to it. Yeah, we'll we'll give Dream Master its Bravo, due. Bravo. Oh wow. I, uh, but yeah, that's uh, but yeah, okay. Number three, we've got Doc, and uh, we've uh again, it does feel fairy tale-ish dreamish again uh it's um it's also something that's important to track because it's gonna be really important when we get to number five uh it's really where uh the the catholicism of the series picks up right i mean there's, there's like there, there's a teensy little bit of it in number one right you know five six better grab your crucifix and like there is like a very like big gaudy Catholic looking crucifix, you know, on the wall in the first one. Um, but that's really it, right? Like that's that's that that's the only like hint of like Catholic imagery there. 
Whereas three gets very Catholic and then five is like so Catholic that like one of the main characters is a fetus. Uh, but in, um, you know, in number three, I mean, this is where you get the, uh, you know, this is where you find out that, you know, that his, uh, his mother was a nun, uh, you know, and you meet the ghost. I was a thousand maniacs. <laughs> yeah, is that, is yeah. that actual song that's in five? Right? Six or five. Where they yeah. Kids tease him for getting like, <laughs> yeah, just child for the, of gang rape. It's like Jesus, <laughs> what kind of children are these? Uh, how do you know that? Everybody knows your mom. It's like you know, it's like man, kids can be vicious when bullied each other, but not like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, and it's also again, I mean, like you know, number first movie, uh, Freddy is defeated. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's from 1984, but almost in this very 1970s way, just kind of by the power of positive thinking, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this like purely internal mental thing with you know Nancy having this breakthrough, and then number two, you know, he's defeated essentially by I don't know heterosexuality. And then, <laughs> so uh, dietetics in part one, sexuality uh, <laughs> in part two, and then uh, but then number three. I mean, he's defeated by having his uh, his bones buried in ground that's been consecrated with holy water. I mean, that's like this is you know this is getting like the the Catholic element is 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 really getting. Uh, you gotta get, Exorcist is still known as the scariest movie of all time. Darth Vader is still the scariest person in the universe. You gotta get in the Wayback Machine to 1987 and really think about plot devices and the age of people that were writing these scripts. Yeah. I'm not. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm no, just, no, no. This makes sense. Like, the, I think this is useful context. I actually just rewatched The Exorcist, like the original one, for probably the first time in like 20 years. They're showing it at the Alamo Draft House, and oh uh, wow, how was that? Uh, I, I, it, it holds up pretty well. It's actually, I actually liked it better than I remember liking it 20 years ago. Um, it's, you know, my line on this was always kind of like, well, maybe you needed a Christian upbringing to like really find it quite this. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't really find foul mouth little girls that scary, but um, in uh, your sister must have been a nightmare around that house. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I will and I will say. I mean, it is funny how much of that is is in the movie. Like, there's a strong suggestion that like part of how like evil got in the house or started to manifest itself was that you know Reagan was playing with a Ouija board and there's like a and there's a pretty unsubtle suggestion that part of how evil got into the house was that her parents were divorced. But there's uh, no father figure. The mom is like a career mom in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but that said, just as a movie, I mean, just, you know, the, the sort of build up of atmosphere in the first part of the movie and everything. Uh, it's like, no, this is actually really good. I've been mean, prop, props to this. Like, it's a it's it's a good movie. I get why. And I feel like I get more now than I did why people have this, uh, you know, why it had that kind of role that it did, that people thought of it as the scariest movie of all time, et cetera. You know, I, I don't know that I, you know, found it scary exactly, but it is a very good movie. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I do agree that it makes sense with that context that, uh, you know, where, where all of this stuff comes from. Uh, although apparently from that, video that i sent you 
the only uh the only sort of mention of holy mother church in uh in uh, the original west craven's uh, script was um oh god i get the girls the uh, asylum confused but uh the first one right we're following around that the uh that like her parents threatened to send her to catholic school i mean that's it oh yeah i forgot about that so jg you have the floor now to talk about why you think part four is the best in the series. I just, there's something about part four and the MTV vibes to it. You know, like I said, the drama Rama soundtrack, I they actually doubled down on the MTV vibes. Uh, oh, definitely. Four. Yeah. Well, this was three was, this a was hit. yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think that was when it was released. That was the same year they did. I mean, they did this twice, but they had Freddie host MTV for Halloween. You know, yep. um, this is also the time when you're getting Freddy's nightmares and syndications. So, you know, people are buying Freddy Krueger lunchboxes. There's just something about that movie. And I really like the just the teen element. I for some reason, I love that cast of characters. I like Kristen better in uh, part four. You know, Arquette's you cool. Like but Arquette? I love Tuesday. I Tuesday night's my favorite. She's one of my favorite girls in these movies. So. You don't like our Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I like Arquette. I didn't say you I didn't like Arquette. Not a Arquette. You don't like the hot Arquette? I, li- I like the hot Arquette. Just, I, I like Tuesday night. I like the, is she, is she the, the like me. hot Arquette, or you're not allowed to say that? This is also <laughs> streaming on your channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like her. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, I... Uh, I mean, I think that it's like, look, there's an obvious sense in which four is, you know, not a great movie. It's like trying to even reconstruct and explain to somebody what the plot of it is, is, uh, is a little bit difficult. The, uh, like the, the way that it starts is like, uh, I mean, one, it just completely, well, both literally and metaphorically pisses on number three, uh, that, um, the you know the way freddie you know that like the after, dog yeah exactly right so like uh there's the you know yeah the dog pees on his grave and that's apparently enough to to you know to cancel out the power of god and uh and release him back into uh, everybody's dreams and then like after all that stuff in number three about how they all have these special dream powers and they can band together and defeat him and, you know, believe themselves. And then like the first like 20 minutes of number four is like, nah, never mind. <laughs> actually, he's going to kill be, the black like, guy in the first five minutes, squash you all like, you know, like bugs, you know, uh, but all of that said, like, I also kind of get what you're saying. It's like, uh, I feel like it's a back to basics Freddy movie, you know, whereas three was much more of a uh, spectacle. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and like number four, like does have, I mean, whatever you think about the plot or anything like that. And it does have like some of the most memorable scenes in the entire franchise. That, that, that whole set piece that screaming mad George, the, uh, special makeup effects guy did the cockroach motel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's still one of the craziest scenes, the cockroach motel. Um, and the a, scene we were trying to find, right? I mean, the thing with the movie theater pizza, and the pizza, yeah. and you know, the souls is the like sausages on the pizza. It's like, yeah, come on, that's fantastic. I get, I get nightmare mixed up with um, that nightmare and that woman. Is she the same woman that's in 
Friday the thirteenth, seven and eight, or six and seven. Uh, the one that plays Alice. Yeah. I don't think she's in the Friday movies. I I only know That's her. A different one. They look so much alike. Yeah, they do. Yeah, she does look like Lar Park Lincoln from uh, Friday, uh, the New Blood. Um, Can we just give JG his props for knowing all the actors' names in these movies? I mean, I've met half these people. I'm a nerd, I don't give so. a damn if they're in your living room right now putting Cheeto crumbs on your couch. The fact that you can rattle off these names. I'm a, a pretty Ben Burgess will tell you. I've seen my fair share of mediocre films and I love them all. I forget names left and right. There's only a handful of names I know. JG, you know the names of actors that were in like you know the the name of the second grip in Sleepaway Camp 4. Like the names that you know. That's true. It's it's impressive as fuck. Again, hug, hug your children, people. <laughs> I'd be uh, a different person if that happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking through her filmography here. Uh, so yeah, I don't think she was in any of that. Uh, weirdly enough, it does look like she had a role in Freddy versus Jason. Oh, really? oh did she come back for that? Apparently she did. Yeah, I'm trying to find. Uh, exactly who she was because i do not definitely nightmare not on elm street like we also there's something that none of us have said so far nightmare on elm street revitalizes what many people see as a dead genre because of the massive backlash that uh silent night deadly night got yeah uh with santa claus being a murderer right um again west craven has these like i guess more cerebral movies not in the cronenberg way because i don't know too many people that think of cronenberg as horror even though i think of it was well cool. i mean it depends on the movie a little bit but yeah um but craven is the cronenberg for low budget horror movies i guess if that makes any sense and he was able to revitalize the genre where they, they literally start bringing back people that we forgot about i mean for a lot of people uh leatherface i don't think he had a name in the first one <laughs> no he didn't he was just leatherface yeah he he, do, he doesn't have a name and you get leatherface 2 you get uh they bring the friday the 13th series back i don't want to say jason Voorhees because they don't bring back jason Voorhees automatically um so yeah these movies are, are, are back yeah but yeah you know the fact yeah. they brought this stuff back just off the strength of one film right but the the sad thing is the derivatives of the nightmare movies. Yikes! Right. Yikes. Was it is it is it sorority house or slumber party massacre? Slumber party massacre two with the uh, oh, rockabilly killer. Oh, the rockabilly killer is the worst horror movie person in the history of horror movie people. Have you ever seen Slumber Party Massacre two? Sorority. Yeah. Party yeah. It's sl Slumber Party Massacre two. Yeah, yeah. You can watch the first one. It's good. It's actually really good. The second one, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, the first one is actually like a sort of feminist yeah. parody of the slasher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The first one is entertaining. The second one, you're like, this is... The second one is filled with scenes of the first one. <laughs> Always a bad sign. 
You know, something I was going to say about Elm Street 4, and I think this is why uh, I like it a lot, is mm-hmm. just, as someone who went to film school, I appreciate that movie because it's kind of, it's like a little engine that could story the making of it. Because, you know, first off, it's made by Rennie Harlan, right? Who ends up becoming a big director doing the, like one of the diehard movies. And, you know, he, he knows how to make a good action film or a genre film. But that movie ran out of its budget. You know, that scene where they, they do the, um, the, the fight between Freddy and the Karate Kid character played by Andres yeah. Jones. Yeah. That wasn't originally what they were going to do. They were going to have him fall into the abyss through an elevator. And they just didn't have the money for it. And in spite of running out of the money, I think they made just a fun little movie. You know, and it really is a fun movie for me. I, I really enjoy it. And I think the fact that they were able to pull off a fun movie while really running out of funds, like I think halfway through is, is something that uh, just the, the sort of filmmaker guy in me is like, I respect that. I respect that. Um, while I have you guys here, I want to ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you this. Can we do a show for Christmas? We don't have to do a live stream. We could pre-record it. Ugh. Why Die Hard, Gremlins, and Lethal Weapon are Christmas movies? Can we do a show? Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah I'll absolutely do that. You guys, you guys saw it here first. This is yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, is the uh, is the time loop scene? Is that four or five? That's four. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's where, also, where they keep okay. they leave yeah. the restaurant. Her yep. and the new boyfriend, and they they keep they're like, wait, we did that before. Yeah. The yeah, deja vu yeah. scene, as I call it. Yeah. No, that's yeah. I mean, that's definitely yeah. That one, the uh, the the pizza scene, uh, the cockroach. I mean, yeah. It, like like it does. Again, for a movie that like the actual story is kind of a strange mess, and the way that it sort of fits into the continuity of the series is very strange. Um, like it does have like a remarkable concentration of like the best scenes in the series. I was gonna say too, the, the effects by. So Screaming Mad George, I mentioned, did the effects for the Cockroach Motel. But uh, Steve Johnson, who did the rest of the effects, including the chest-bursting scene, which there's an interesting anecdote about that. I think the effects work really well. <clears throat> um, the chest-burster scene where um, Linnea Quigley, uh, the famous Scream Queen, pops out of Freddy's chest at the end, along with all these other souls. It's funny to me that when she popped out of his chest, uh, they they yelled cut and Steve Johnson, the head special effects guy, went up to Linnea and said he got down on one knee and said, "Will you marry me?" And she was covered in goo this whole time. <laughs> as he's, and then a part of the set, I think I, I'd I'd have to look this up again, but they almost died on set because like one of the special effects rigs almost broke. Jesus. But you know, luckily they lived, and then she was like, "I do." So <laughs> I mean, you know, but I I love the effects married? in it. Yeah. They're still married? Uh, they got divorced a few years later. but Didn't yeah. she marry Stephen Baker, too? I don't think so. I don't – yeah, I haven't talked to Lene in a while. But uh, I she mainly has talked about her relationship with Steve Johnson, the special effects guy on 4. Um, but, yeah, it's the effects in it, I think, work really well. You, you had two really – two of the best special effects people of the 80s in the form of a – Steve Johnson and Screaming Mad George. People forget. I mean, Steve Johnson's the guy that did um Slimer in uh, uh, Ghostbusters. I think Kevin Yeager isn't in four. 
No, I don't think Kevin Yeager was doing. I think the the Child's Play movies, and then he eventually did Hellraiser. He did too. Okay. Did, did I say name? Kevin? I meant if I I may have said Kevin Johnson. I meant uh, Steve Johnson. That's what you said. You said the name right. I said okay, okay. I asked about Kevin Yeager. Because I know he did the Child's Play movies. I swear Kevin Yeager made the big Freddy snake in three. I could be wrong. That's the weird thing. A lot of these movies do end up blending together. For as much as I'm like a huge horror movie fan, I sometimes mix these movies up too. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 easy to do. I mean, because like there's so much of the imagery that's like it's cool, but it could be anywhere. I was As you were saying, it's like, hold on. I know this movie pretty well. Big Freddy Snake. Uh, which, where's this in three? This is when he has Kristen. Is that her name or Tina? Kristen. He's got her in his mouth. Oh, he yep, yep. Her down. And then yep. he sees Nancy and he goes, "Nancy snaps him in the eye," and she goes, "You." Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's uh that's. I swore that was Kevin. I could be wrong. Also, there was a handful of guys that were working, and they were working a lot. So that's why a lot of these, to me, that's why a lot of these things are going to blend together because you have a small clique of dudes that are uh, making all these special effects for these films. No, that's very true. I've talked to um, uh, Gary Tunnicliffe, who did the uh, special effects for Hellraiser, and he's like, yeah, it was weird in the 80s and 90s, man. Because we were all competing with each other. So we'd talk behind each other's back and then we'd be working on with each other the next day. It was like it was a very dog eat dog world for special effects people at that time. Uh but there was I, not a work for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was. Uh the other thing I was gonna say about Elm Street four, I think the other thing I like about it, and I know Ben, I, I get what you mean by the story isn't the best, Ugh. but I, I really like Alice's character arc. She uh-huh. goes from this like quiet, diminutive girl. To like really uh, embracing, uh, you know, this new reality where I mean, she's sort of absorbing the the powers and character traits of her friends uh, that have been slashed by Freddy. And there's something about her character arc that I really like. I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. Like, the, I wouldn't say it's like a feminist character arc, but she finds her like inner power. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's something I relate to about that character. I mean, in a weird way, it's like a it's like a remix of the Dream Warriors idea that like uh, rather than like everybody finding their things or whatever, it's like they're all she's becoming cumulatively all of them. Mm. Now let's go to Nightmare Five, the Dream uh, Dream Child, Child, yeah, Dream Fetus, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. it's the Dream Fetus. There's no song. What's the song for part five? Yeah, I don't know. JG, who's the, who's got the song? Oh, I don't. I don't remember the main song for, for for part five. There is something that's like really weird about uh, JG and I have talked about this about like the fact that like they decided to make three through five continuous with each other. Mm-hmm. It's like they did not need to do that. They could have done like pretty much everything the same for all these movies without doing that. And the fact that they are continuous with each other. So, you know, four starts out following around the people from three, five starts out, you know, following around the girl from four. Like it's, it's like, it, it's, it makes you um, like, there is this weird thing where it's like, it kind of feels like it's like people. Yeah. I think you said this. It's like, yeah, she's like sitting around the pool 
with the brand new group of friends she made since like her previous group of friends was all massacred by Freddy six months ago. Hell and chill about it too. Remember we were joking about that shit at the house. We we're like, she's so they're like, we're your best friends. And we're like, you bitch, I just met you like a month ago. Yeah, how how many months could you possibly have been hanging out with these people given the last movie we just saw? And then, you know, and then it's also like because every time it's like, ooh, I think it might be starting to happen again. No, you're crazy. That exact <laughs> thing that's already happened to you twice, like that surely couldn't be happening again now. I'm looking at the soundtrack right now. And oh my God. I'll read you from there's ten tracks. There's no way in the world you guys would ever guess who was on these. The first song is called Heaven in the Backseat by a group called Romeo's Daughter. You ever heard of them? That's got to be someone in the production's son's band. Uh, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter by Bruce Dickinson. I think this was the moment where Bruce Dickinson did some solo stuff and left Iron Maiden for a minute. Savage by Wasp. I know them. I just looked at the soundtrack. I did not know Scully D is on the soundtrack for this. I'm getting there. Uh, Can't Take the Hurt by Mammoth. Mammoth was Van Halen's original name. Uh, What You Don't Know About Rock and Roll by Slave Raider. That name is problematic. (laughs) Sure. Anyway, I Gotta Swing It by Houdini. Now I Lay Me Down by Samantha Fox. Samantha Fox was like the white. She was Britney Spears. And Taylor Swift before Britney Spears and Taylor Swift before Taylor Dane took her out of the game. Um, Let's go by Cool Modi. Word up, Doc by Doctor Ice. Who the fuck is Doctor Ice? Where did he get his ice doctorate? Did he go to the same school as Doctor Mindbender? Um, Living in the Jungle by Schoolie D. I don't know any of these songs. I wish we were in the champagne room so we could play these songs. Because I totally want to hear. You always do that. I want to hear what Dr. Ice has to say. I want to know if What Up Doc is about his dissertation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh... Number five, Dream Child. Uh, <laughs> not a not a good not a good uh, soundtrack. Yeah, a uh, real soundtrack decline, you know, from uh, from Doc into all this. Uh, well, they they literally this was one of those movies where you know, like Halloween four to Halloween five, this was they basically launched production on this immediately after Nightmare four. I think it was like what like two weeks had had gone by since. Nightmare 4 came out. They're like, let's do Nightmare 5. Get all get cast members from the fourth one. Let's do this quick, quick, quick. You know, very rushed production. Yeah. Um, which is also kind of funny because it's the same the same point in both series, right? Because uh, Halloween 4 was the return of Michael Myers, uh, which is like feels kind of similar to like what Dream Warriors was doing in the overall scheme of the Nightmare movies. I can't wait to read you guys part six soundtrack okay well we'll uh we'll get to that we'll right? keep on five you yeah, yeah, we'll talk about five we get the uh we we get uh this just surreal scene of uh of the 
of the children taunting Freddie about the gang rape that, uh, that fathered him. Uh, he, uh, we, um, you know, we get, uh, we get a lot more nun stuff in this one, you know, a lot more Amanda. I was going to say that stuff's really dark too, with the nun, right? Yeah. Like they're literally showing the, the maniacs descending upon her. I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is really true. Uh, yeah, good thing. What what do you guys think about the uh, the child actor? I mean, that's my response. You know, I always like forget uh, how much he figures into the movie for some reason. Yeah, he's a the stuff I remember are the kills. Yeah, you know, like uh, Dan's kill, which, like I said, it's it's really weird. Uh, so Dan's kill, Mark's kill, and and the Greta kill were all cut for the theatrical version. And for some reason, you can only get – it's not just the Laserdisc. The original first VHS release is also uncut. But uh, this movie was going to be rated X initially. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, especially Greta's kill. That's the girl with the, the, the like, she's too skinny, you know, like the bulimia-type issue. Um, there is just some really dark stuff in this movie, in my view. Yeah. Which is, It's really weird because it's also, like – very goofy, uh, but it also has like, some really weird, like gothic and like mean spirited elements. <laughs> it's just a very, the tone is very schizophrenic. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So Alice, uh, I'm just, I'm just kind of reminding myself of the plot with the summary here, uh, that, uh, she starts out, she's, uh, uh, so she's graduated from high school, which is, you know, for whatever reason, it's not an intrinsically memorable scene, but it's one of the ones that sticks in my head. The let's blow this popsicle stand, uh, you know, high school, uh, high school graduation speech. Um, and uh, and she's with her, uh, you know, she's with her new friends, right? Her her old group of, you know, best buddies all have been killed by Freddie. Uh, the uh, so Greta. Yes, the uh, aspiring but reluctant uh, supermodel. Um, so yeah, because her mom is the is the one who's who's kind of making her do that. Uh, Mark, a comic book fan, and uh, Yvonne, a uh, a hospital volunteer, and uh, and swimmer. Uh, so uh, so Yvonne is the one, if I'm remembering right. We were, uh, uh, remember. The thing we did on Halloween, uh, Jason asked if uh, if Freddie was racist, and at first I said no, I don't remember him saying any racist stuff. Well, even when he was killing black people, it's like no, wait, this is the exception, right? You know, he uh, he says something like you know how sweet dark meat or something like that. I think he says that in Freddie vs. Jason as well. Okay, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Actually, maybe I'm, yeah, maybe yeah, I'm yeah. just conflating the two right now. Uh, but you know. I am thinking of Freddy versus Jason. I don't think he actually says this in, uh, in number five. So that's fair. Um, but yeah. Uh, so, um, so she, uh, is on her way, uh, to work. Alice finds herself back in the asylum where she sees Amanda giving birth, uh, to a gruesomely deformed baby. Yeah. He's sort of the, in this like dream sequence, uh, baby Freddy kind of looks like a like an alien from the Alien movies. Yeah, I love uh, Baby Freddy to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's such a grody looking dude. 
No, that's a fun detail. Um, let's see. You know, since you mentioned the Yvonne thing, I thought it was interesting. You know, I, I think a lot of people will talk about how so many 80s horror movies, the first person to go is the black cast member, the black character. Right, it's and it's funny because this is actually an exception to that. Mm-hmm. Yvonne survives. So. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, it's like, because that is such a cliche. I wonder how true that is if you actually, anybody's actually sat down and, you know, done the definitive, you know, watch through of a bunch of these movies to see how often the black guy actually does die first. Uh, I guess within these movies, that's the case for number four. But then again, uh, he's only in number four because he survived all the way to the end of number three. Oh yeah, with Kincaid. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Right, you know that he's the first one to die. I, I think right in the uh, in number four. But again, you know, he obviously survived uh, survived three. Um, but yeah, that's uh, let's see. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh. <laughs> Uh, Amanda tries to collect the baby before it escapes, but sneaks out of the operating room. Alice finds follows the baby into the church where she defeated Freddy in the previous film. Uh, the baby finds Freddy's remains and quickly grows into an adult, hinting to Alice that he has found the key to coming back. Um, which, yeah, is also, by the way, maybe something that's worth pausing on, you know, while we're waiting for Jason to come back, uh, that this is, there is like, there is something funny about like contrasting the different movies and how much effort they either do or don't feel the need to put in to explaining how he comes back or whether like sometimes it's just like, yeah, whatever he's back. Don't worry about it. No, I definitely, uh, I agree with that. I think by part five, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, part four, they didn't really explain how he comes back. They're just like, dog piss Uh, (laughs) exactly right like uh yeah yeah part four i mean i guess there is that is technically sort of an explanation but like you know what the mechanics of that are anybody's guess uh and then yeah five i guess if he's hinting that he's found a key to coming back so this whole thing is that like somehow or another he's coming back through the child yeah exactly yeah yep yep he's like in, in a weird way he's like uh seducing the child over the, to the dark side, uh, sort of like a Darth Vader, uh, Luke Skywalker thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, exactly. Yeah. It, it is very much played like that, uh, over the, the course of the movie that there's like the scene, you know, like later in the movie, there's the stuff where he's like hanging out like the child, right. He's still a fetus in the real world, but you know, he's a, uh, he's like a, he's like a little kid in, uh, in the dreams, has like these like real dark pouches, you know, by on his eyes and, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's starting, you know, he's starting to look a little creepier, you know, because of the Freddy influence uh, over the course of the movie. It's been a while since I've seen this. There's a whole, isn't there a whole subplot that's sort of very um, Reagan America about, isn't she wondering if she's going to get rid of the kid or not? Yeah. Like have an abortion. Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. I think that, uh, so, um, so yeah, let's see. Um, so Al alarm, she contacts Dan who falls asleep en route to see her. That's right. Yep. So there's the, uh, 
this is the this is the scene where um as I was uh as I was filibustering waiting for you to get back, we were going through much more of a beat by beat description of the movie than we've been doing for any of the other of, of five. Are you on yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry everybody. I it's been very dry here and Ben can attest to this. It's an odd climate. So even though I live next to the ocean and it's relatively warm, it's also really dry. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, it's literally desert. desert. Yeah. yeah, cactus grows wild here. And so I go running, and I didn't really think anything of it. I and mean, lately I've been having these horrible nosebleeds, so my nose exploded on air, so I wanted to. Which would have been thematically appropriate. <laughs> I don't, people if always assume that I drink and do drugs, and I don't want people thinking that I had a brooklyn podcaster nosebleed this is truly <laughs> okay <A. laughs> sorry that, that one took me by surprise uh, <laughs> i i know we've been going through this movie beat by beat uh yeah, while we, 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 we were waiting for jason to come back granularity <laughs> so, like, no what i wanted to mention was i love the opening of this movie like the opening credits because i remember i was watching it uh about a year ago and my brother walked in and, you know, uh, he may have been somewhat inebriated and he was just laughing hysterically. And he says to me, what is this? So like the opening of a Skinamax movie? <laughs> like the whole movie, the, the whole opening, the opening credits is like Alice and Dan, you know, doing the sexy with each other to like this weird blue lighting. And it, you, you're like, what is this late time HBO Skinamax territory we're in? You know, so it, as we move on to to part six in the original movies uh freddy's dead right because now um the the slasher movie is overdone it right that we've oversaturated the slasher market as well um the soundtrack is filled with some bands that maybe you've heard of uh i'm awake now by the goo goo dolls the goo goo dolls that was like a before they were famous thing well they were on metal blade I believe their first that what's that hit? No, they were on Metal Blade at the time. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were Metal Blade because Metal Blade was trying to uh, get with the new style. Because again, a lot of things were getting out of vogue. Uh, Google Dolls has three songs on this soundtrack. Fate's Warning has a song on this soundtrack. Do you remember Fate's Warning? No. Kind of proggy metal band. And okay. you know who did the score of Part Six? Uh. Graham Revell, I think, did it. Queen's Brian May. Okay. Oh, the, I was thinking there was an unused. They actually had two scores, and one of them went unused. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I always forget that Brian May did the soundtrack. I for totally didn't realize that Brian May yeah. did the score for Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. That must have been a favor, or or someone knew, or or they had some budget money, or like you know what we really need a Brian May score for this. Um, there's a best of Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack. Did you know that? Oh, really? Brian May, Jay Ferguson, Craig Saffin, Christopher Young. Yeah. Um, part six is definitely so over the top that it was hard for us to watch, and we knew what we were watching. When being, you know what I, I, I always say that this, and people look at me when I say this if they don't know about the making of it or who made it but i always tell people freddy's dead is the john waters movie <laughs> of the franchise no and that's true because rachel Talaley, 
who directed it. And I, I like Rachel's films a lot. I think she's a very quirky director. She went on to do Tank Girl, which is a sort of 90s favorite for me. And I think a lot of Gen Xers that are into cult films. But, you know, she got her start working with John Waters on movies like Hairspray and Crybaby. And you can definitely see a sort of John Waters-esque tone throughout this movie. Um, it's not my favorite of the franchise, but I do kind of like the offbeat nature of oh, it. Oh, look, someone's on the screen saying like this. I don't know this person's name. Kago Tiao. Kakatao says, not that Brian May. Soundtrack Brian May is Australian. Soundtrack Brian May needs to change his fucking name. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm with you. I I'm with you, JG. I I I have like a big soft spot for number six, just because like Freddy's dead. Um, just because it just I don't know. In some weird way, it just goes for it to like. In a much <laughs> way. I like I like the you know what I did like about Freddy's dead that I thought was kind of cool was Ugh. the kids are gone and the parents are crazy. Yeah. Johnny Depp cameo. Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold had a cameo. Alice Cooper, right? Alice yeah. Cooper plays Freddy's dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then, like, the guest starring role from Yafit Kota. There's a lot of recognizable Doesn't Freddy beat his wife in six? Uh, I think there's actually yeah, he an implication yeah. that he kills his wife. Like He definitely beat her. He actually hit her in front of the kid. Yeah, he hit her in front of the kid, and you see that in the flashbacks. Yeah, but there's like um, there's, there's, there's like a scene where he's like she's like seems to have found out about something, and it's like very ominous. I think there's like a strong insinuation that he kills her, but um, but yeah, no, I mean it's like just just the way that it like I don't know. I mean I can't like even though yes, it is. Freddy has become fully Bugs Bonafide in this one. He's uh like any sort of trace of the creepiness, whatever number one is like long since gone, whatever. But like just something about, again, just the way it's going for it. Like just how over the top, like the fact that it starts with uh, this like long quote from like Nietzsche about dreams and then (laughs) welcome to primetime bitch, Freddy Krueger. And then like this scene where it's like there it's the uh, wizard of Oz scene with, uh, with, with Freddy on a broomstick. Freddy is the wicked witch. (laughs) I I always remember the part where he, uh, I think John Doe is falling from the sky and then Freddy is, is like pushing uh, with his back, the uh, bed of spikes or whatever it is. And I'm like, he is literally Wiley e. Coyote in that scene, you know. Uh, yeah, I will say this: there is one kill in this movie that scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Which one is uh, the Carlos kill? So Carlos was the dude oh. with the hearing aids. And for anything involving ears or eyes, ocular horror and ear horror scares That's the crap out of me. I can't fuck with the Italians, dude. If you're trying, look. Yeah. If you're gonna yeah. watch it, Ben hasn't seen a lot of Italian horror. And we would always we'd be done with our day and everything. We're gonna try to watch a horror movie, but trying to watch Italian horror as you're kind of dozing off, not cool to try to watch Fulci when you're dozing off because you're gonna see. Yeah, you don't watch zombie while you're dozing off, and then you wake up with the eyeball scene and the. I would rather listen to the song Zombie on repeat than watch the Fulci zombie going to sleep. Um. People are talking about the ear thing. Uh, yeah, the ear thing was was actually scary. Um, 
it's weird because it's done in a comic way where he's like he's scratching the chalkboard and saying "Ooh, ah but for some reason as a kid i was like "Ooh, this is actually creepy oh this is what i want to ask you someone brought it up uh so you say you like part six did you enjoy the floating sperm yeah, the three, uh, the three dream demons, which is why oh, in the, uh, in, uh, in, yeah, no, well, it makes sense because the previous movie had a, had a feed a dream fetus, so it's like now there's the sperm. Uh, we're going backwards. Uh, yeah, no, in the, um, in, I remember I used to have the DVD box set where like the spines of all the DVDs like came together to form this image of Freddy like turned around and it was like trench coat and fedora and our, and it came with, uh, with the set of 3d glasses, uh, because of the dream sperm scene. Um, yeah, I, I like just the brazenness of the fact that it's number six and they're introducing this whole like layer of mythology. That's like never been even remotely hinted at whatsoever in the first five movies. This is what's happening with these films. They're creating mythologies. Michael Myers has to get a whole mythology created around him. Yeah, that becomes a, a problem for a lot of the fans of the movie when they have to create the whole uh, demonic shit with him. Freddy gets a whole huge mythology, which is the bulk of the story in six Um that kind of wasn't there before you made a point a long time ago when I mistakenly commented on someone's post on Instagram and I learned my fucking lesson. There was a, and I know, you know, this story, JG almost 20 years ago, there was this fake news article that came out and said a black woman had won like a billion dollar settlement um, because she was the original author of the Terminator series and the the Matrix series. I don't even think it was. Yeah, I think her name was like Sophia or Sophie Stewart. Like, yeah. yeah. And she had wrote a book, but it definitely didn't wasn't those same things. Um, she didn't win a lawsuit. She did bring a lawsuit. She didn't win. She actually had to pay um, because she lost. But she did go on TV and talk about it. I don't know why. I don't know who would have someone that lost a lawsuit come on TV, but um, I had responded about that that <laughs> that narrative, and I got oh, I forgot where I was going with this, and I got all this this uh, this pushback. Oh fuck! What were we just talking about, Ben? It fell out with all the blood. <laughs> Am I know? Uh, so we're talking about the dream demons and like the new mytho- like the mythology there. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the 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 the, the, myth, the mythologies around that shit. Ben had made a point when when I was getting like every day I would get all these like hundreds of comments about why I was a piece of shit for saying that he didn't write it. And Ben goes, if you watch those movies, you can see that they were never made for sequels. Oh my god, yeah, like the, the Matrix, the Terminator. The fact that she was claiming not just like it would have been one thing if she was even claiming that she'd like written like Terminator and The Matrix, fine. Right. But like the Matrix, especially like the ending of that first movie could not have been clear that there were not supposed to be sequels. I mean, it was like it was over. They'd like like the last line of dialogue is like I'm making a phone, a call and every phone in the world is going to answer. It's like, yeah, that that's it. Right. You're done. And, you know, even even the Terminator in a different way, it's like 
these things weren't built for like, you know, like they obviously they were successful enough. They can, you know, came up with sequels, but like, um, but it's just very funny that like, she, she has to like overplay it and claim that she, you know, she wrote not only the thing, but the sequel is if they were all written at the same time. She created the whole universe. It's uh, yeah. It's yeah. weird because I think she claimed yeah. Terminator ripped her off, yes. but it's fun. I always found that funny because Harlan Ellison, I think, actually won his lawsuit yeah. against the people who made Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch, he, he if you watch like, they the first Terminator, there's a there's he a, didn't he didn't win. There's a well, there's a settlement. If you watch if you watch it in the credits, there's like this very carefully worded line in the credits about how like we'd like to acknowledge the works of Harlan Ellison, which is like, okay, you can really feel like the lawyers negotiating about the wording there, right? That it's like, they're not acknowledging wrongdoing or anything, but it's like, they're doing something that, you know, apparently was enough to satisfy them. Yeah. Stevie says forced franchises. And that's, that's kind of how I feel with these movies as well. Wes Craven had no idea he was going to have a franchise. With well, this no, movie. in fact, I mean, this is why like he didn't want there to be a sequel because he was like, no, I told the story. It's over. And Rob Shea, on the other hand, the producer, <laughs> was like, no, 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 no. We have to. That's why they changed the ending of the original when you have the goofy doll at the end going with, through the you know, Ronnie Blackley's doll. Uh, that is something that is true about this franchise. I mean, there's a reason that New Line kept making these and why New Line has been called the house that Freddy yeah. built. Yeah. Rob Shea saw a lot of money in this. And I, I think Rob does like the franchise. He even has cameo in Freddy's Dead. Uh, I think he holds it pretty dear uh, to his heart. But really, I mean, this is a franchise that's about how can we milk this cow? You know, make more well, cash. What was he doing before Freddy? I, mean, I, was, I, I was really surprised. I thought, Jay, like, this would be the perfect uh, opportunity for Jason to roll out like a Bob Shea impression that would just be his standard, like, cigar chomping, vaguely <laughs> caricature of, like, uh, you know, movie executive. Uh, hey, first of all, Ben, to, to be fair, there's no vague. <laughs> to be fair, Shea, Shea and New Line did do stuff before Freddy, yeah. right? Like, uh, but they were involved really... in getting John Waters' Pink Flamingos out there, but they were kind of like an art house. They were made no stage. money, and he was doing, like, uh, instructional films and shit like that. He made yeah, no yeah. money. And by the time they do Freddy, it's such a massive profit for them. Like, these Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, makes so much freaking money for the studios like we have to remember and these are little studios that these are, you need another one and the original directors were like i don't want to make another one i want to do something i want to do and look at look at john carpenter talk about halloween part two all the time i got a bunch of beer i got a 12 pack of beers and i wrote the screenplay that's why it's all in a hospital. I didn't want to do it. Wes Craven doesn't get involved, really involved, until, what, 10 years later? You, you know, because they they, mm-hmm. they didn't see these movies as franchises, and by the time they want to get involved, it's like, man, it's too late. Like, if Carpenter could have had his wish and they made Halloween an anthology series, because I, I went back and watched Halloween 3 again, I really think that's a good movie. I mean, it doesn't make a lick of sense, but it's a good movie. It, it number, oh. yeah. 
I mean, it is funny too that it's like that the movie that he didn't want to write that it was like it's just like fine, fuck it, I'll shit something out. Uh, includes the plot twist that like grounds the entire rest of the series, right? Like that, uh, you know, about Laurie, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think that it's like that that probably I don't know. I mean, I really like some of those later movies, but it's like yeah, that that probably objectively would have been better if they're just like hey let's just make an unrelated unrelated horror movie that's set on halloween every time i do think that's an important point though you make jason that some people overlook i think some people sometimes forget how much money these movies made because they'll think well it didn't make like jurassic park money like like how jurassic park made that money in the 90s and i'm like yeah but these were movies made on like you know a two million dollar budget and that's making you know, 20 million back. I mean, it's making, you know, 30, all its 40, money back. $50 million. They're making yeah, like million yeah. dollar budgets. Uh, Carpenter, the budget for the original Halloween is 300 grand. It made like right. uh, almost a hundred million dollars, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not only that, but like, I mean, people forget Carpenter tried to come back to Halloween even after Halloween three, yeah. you know, there was supposed to be a Halloween four. Uh, it was actually going to be written by Dennis Etchison. Uh, that was going to bring in, of all people, Joe Dante to direct it. And it would have had a kaiju, Jason, yeah. like or kaiju Michael Myers at the end. But <clears throat> Michael Myers and uh, or John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were going to be involved in that. You know, there's always been attempts by John Carpenter to get that franchise back, even to the point where he wanted to do a uh, Michael Myers in space movie at one point. I mean, why not? There was a Jason in space movie. Car- yeah, yeah. Carpenter's out there, dude. And some of his movies that he makes, uh, like We All Love the Thing. I'm so glad they didn't make another thing, right? Uh, I just watched again. I mean, there was the sort of weird uh, prequel thing. Oh, like, that doesn't count. He didn't have his hand in that. Yeah, yeah. That was horrible. Uh, what's the movie that Carpenter? Not, not, not Prince of Darkness. The other one. In the, JG. in the mouth of madness. In the mouth of madness. I watched that the other day. I was confused because I thought you were. It's weird. Carpenter. It's like there's vintage 80s yeah. Carpenter, 70s and 80s, yeah. and then you get to the 90s and it's much more it's muddled. Carpenter. He, yeah. He, even even in the 90s though, he had a. Few, I mean, in the mouth of madness is good. That's good stuff there. Uh, you know, I was gonna say too about Craven. Yeah, you know, I think Craven regretted not making as much money as he thought he deserved for the original Elm Street, because even before he comes back for Wes Craven's new nightmare, he does the movie Shocker with Mitch Pileggi as the serial killer who dies and travels through the TVs to kill kids. But that movie is basically him trying to create a new Freddy Krueger character that he can have full creative control over and make all the money on, you know? So everyone was trying to milk these franchises. The only one person has been able to do that. And her name is Taylor Swift. I don't know if you guys know about Taylor Swift. She literally got the the masters to one of her biggest selling records back, and just yes. re, she remastered it. Sorry, she remastered her biggest record and put it out with like a couple new songs. Which who knows if they're new songs? Just like ah, you know, here you go. Um, but every time you see someone like we have the remastered, it's because they got the rights back to their stuff and they want to cash in on this on this hit that they weren't able to control um before and it's harder to do with movies and i 
that's a really great point that Wes Craven tried to do with Shocker, and it just didn't hit because we already had Freddy, and he was already established for like 10 years at this point. <laughs> or not 10, maybe like seven years, but he was an established yeah. thing. Oh, he was super established. I mean, by the time they did... Um, so, well, the movie we were just talking about, right? Freddy's Dead. Um, like, I I actually hadn't known this until something I was looking at to write the Jackman article, but it's like they actually, uh, you know, they did a real, like, they did a uh, actual funeral for Freddy at the uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery, um, which is, uh, yeah, I actually which is the uh, the cemetery I adopted my cat from. Uh, I was one of uh, some kittens that were... Uh, I love the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. They, they posted on their Facebook page that they had like a bunch of kittens they were feeding there who needed... Uh, um, well, the, uh, but, I was going to say the mayor of um, of L.A. at the time announced that... Yeah, it was Freddy Krueger Day. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... This is our... Yeah, this is this is uh, you know like you know the mayor of Los Angeles going to say declare a day for a uh, fictional serial killer who kills children. Hey, it's it's right. better than uh, Pennsylvania that has a whole statue of a fake boxer. Fair <laughs> you, what, what's interesting, and yeah, I, well, I guess I've never gonna... had a real boxer there. So. Yeah, never. Nobody from Philadelphia <laughs> has ever boxed. <laughs> They're not a racist city at all. That Bill Burr bit where he where he just rips into Philadelphia while they boo him is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Um, the Shocker soundtrack has Megadeth on it. That's all. Yep. That's all you need to say. Covering "No More Mr. Nice Guy" before Marty Friedman gets in the band. Did you know that? If they're a three piece, and it, there's a shot of three of them you see nick menza dave ellison and dave mustaine and uh penelope spheres said that she did the video for that she said dave mustaine was so fucked up that he couldn't play and do the singing lip syncing at the same time that's why it's not shot <laughs> there's a shot of his face singing the words and there's a shot of his fingers playing because he was just so messed up 1988 was a magical year west craven's shocker is what they called it I did not like. I wanted to like Shocker so bad. I love Shocker. Oh, Horace Pinker didn't do it for me. Do you remember Shocker, Ben? Or is that one of those movies you weren't allowed to see? <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't allowed to see any of them. But I have a. I did. Uh, it's not. It's not one that I ever got around to seeing. I've never seen Shocker. I'd like to get your take on Shocker when you finally get to see it. I think you. I think you could stream Shocker, can't you? JG. I don't know. I just have the DVD of it. Oh, by the way, Ben, JG doesn't stream shit. He just has a DVD and VHS collection that rivals any store you've been to in the mysterious parts of LA. Yeah, I mean, I I admire that. I mean, I I think there's something, you know, as we talked about many times, I mean, it's like there's there's something that I really, you know, um, you know, Jason's heard me talk about this, but I mean, JG, there's a there's a uh, essay that I really like by Freddie DeBoer called um, it's so sad when old people romanticize their past. Also, the 1990s were objectively the best time to be alive. And, and, uh, and you know, it's something he talks about in the air, but it's like, uh, I mean, he's not talking, you know, I, I actually don't even think this is a specific example he uses in there, but I mean, it's like the general 
drift of what he's talking about in there. Like, it's like, ah, I miss the shit out of video stores. Like, uh, the, I think that that is just a better way to relate to the experience of watching a video movie at home that like, you know, you go like that, you know, that you go out, it's like this, it's this, it's this like thing that you're doing. You leave the house, you're looking around, you're making a selection. The selection means something. It's not, you know, it's not that like every other movie that's ever been made is also at your fingertips, literally like a couple of clicks away, you know, like that's uh yeah, no, I think it's a, I, I think it's maybe the golden mean between, you know, not having home video and having what we have now. Right. The, right. the video store, and we've talked about this before and I'll let's talk about it again. I don't care. I, the video store and the record store were such magical places for me. And I still love to go into record stores when uh, Shaka Kani and I go to TJ, there's a tons of record stores that actually have videos and DVDs in them. And just like, Sadly, I don't have any way to play these things, <laughs> but just like looking at them and I still get the same kind of excitement whenever I see certain uh, uh, album covers. Seeing an album cover digitally is not the same as seeing the the tape or the record or the, or the long box uh, CD with the picture on the back and reading the liner notes and, and all that fun stuff and and going to the video store to to wait, like we were talking the other day about like waiting at Blockbuster for the movie that you want to see or any video store. Cause you know, it had to be back by midnight They're, and they would tell you, we have three of these coming back. Yeah, like, yeah, I, remember that. I will wait. Yeah. I will wait. And they better not be late. <laughs> like I, that experience is so different to now when we all are going to get off the screen except for JG and his massive collection of of uh, hard copy films and dick around for an hour and a half watch you know 50 minutes of trailers before we watch the same thing we've watched 100 times that is prob- probably literally what I'm going to do yes <laughs> so I, I I just miss going down that aisle that horror aisle and being like, what the fuck is this? Cause sometimes in the horror aisle will be all those crazy action movies that don't make any sense. That I also love way too much. Someone says one squad goes to blockbuster for two movies. <laughs> the other car goes to the gas station for snacks that Zach, you, you and your friends were good people. You guys had a true plan. That was yeah. a true plan. I mean, to be fair, once we're in the Blockbuster era, less true of like just random video stores. But once we're in the Blockbuster era, you know, they, you know, they did have a bunch of snacks at Blockbuster also. They did towards the end. They did. Yeah. 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 And it's like, and it's something that's very, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm a little nostalgic for Blockbuster, but like, uh, there's something that's very funny about people being nostalgic for Blockbuster. It's like, you know, you're nostalgic for the thing that like wiped out the much better thing that there was before it. It wiped out everything. It wiped Yeah. Out. I mean, it killed a lot of indie yeah. uh, sort of producers. I mean, I, I was lucky. I had a um, cult video store in Pittsburgh called uh incredibly strange video that I went, I was going there when I was like 12 years old, picking out the craziest movies. I wasn't even going to blockbuster, but blockbuster really killed a lot of like mom and pop operations. This yeah. is, this is the best thing right here. If we beat the game that night, we could trade it for another. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, I mean, in um, 
yeah, I mean, in East Lansing, Michigan, where I'm from, uh, there was Video to Go, which is a very good local indie video store that was still in operation, like shockingly late. Like, I think that was like, um, I think that was like, I don't know, 2016 or something that that finally went under. But, um, but um, the also, you know, by that time, right, I'd already spent so much of my adult life living other places that, um, you know, I spent a lot of time living in places where Blockbuster was the only option, you know, uh, like Miami. They just, when they came in, it just was, to be able to have that many new releases, and that's really what it was all about at that time, was about new releases, because even yeah, though... Blockbusters. Yeah. And as new releases were coming to video sooner in this area, we're talking about like the early 90s, um, and movies started getting slightly more expensive, to go to Blockbuster, it was like two bucks, two ninety nine, I think. And they had a wall of new movies. And they even have even if the wall of new movies was like the straight to video new movies that weren't gonna hit cable yet. And you're like, oh dude, we gotta see this, you know, thing, this diehard knockoff with, you know, uh uh Eric Roberts and David Hasselhoff. <laughs> like we gotta This looks great. Look at the cover. There's an explosion. Like I I I miss that. Um, no, I, you know, I have to say I miss it too because even though I was really young at the time, I would, I would walk past the video aisles, uh, especially the horror section, and you would just see certain covers that would catch your eye. Yes. So, like, I always remember as a kid seeing the cover of the Brian Yusna movie, The Dentist. Yes. And the, you know, this red cover with the woman's teeth out and all this other, and I'm like, there was just something I was like, what? Because there's something when you're young, it's like it feels forbidden to be looking at the horror movie section, you know? So it's, you know, uh, it's something I miss too, in a lot of ways, even though I was only around for like the tail end of it. All my favorite metal bands, like all these metal bands released VHSs in the eighties. And those were all at the video store too. That's how I got to see Motley Crue's uncensored video and uh, all the other crazy, they were like video magazines that used to come out. Do you remember those Ben? Hard. I think they're all on YouTube. Yeah, I do actually. Hard and heavy. Actually, again, if you're coming, if you're coming to see the live <laughs> meet and greet, one of the stars of the Hard and Heavy video magazine, Craig Cicero, will be there telling stories. You can yeah. ask Craig about being in it. Um. So I, yeah, that's how I found bands was like Hard and Heavy. They did a whole Bay Area edition, which I thought was like the coolest thing ever. And uh, yeah, the video store. Like these movies have a special place for me because it's like the video store, the dollar movie. I don't know if dollar movies exist anymore in anybody's neighborhood. There was also, I guess I should say, in cities when Blockbuster went under, that was just it, right? There were yeah. no more uh no more video stores. If you lived out in like a rural area, uh then oftentimes there actually was partially because there was more of a market for it because of bad like broadband you know uh you know that like um there actually was this place this chain called family video that uh i think actually made it all the way until covid i think that's what finally killed it oof oof yeah um so that's so like Houghton lake michigan they had a they had a family video um but uh but yeah if you lived in a city 
it's like you probably you know unless it's like la which actually does still have a couple of video stores like unless it's that right you know you uh you probably haven't actually rented a video store since obama's president <laughs> go for it jg i was gonna say um i i was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um uh i want i know we're gonna get to wes craven's new nightmare but you know, it's interesting. A lot of people say that 90s era was like the death of horror and everyone was burned out by the slasher movie. I actually think that's like revisionist history mm. because I think the reason. So Halloween 5 comes out in 89 and they do an ending where there's like a man in black. Right. And they didn't know who is the man in black. So it took them five years to come up with a way to tie that uh, plot hole up, you know, uh, to, to figure out what's the twist going to be in the sixth movie. And then Freddy's Dead wasn't really uh, an example of the franchise being out of juice. That had the biggest opening week of any of the Freddy movies up until that point. It, it was later surpassed by Freddy vs. Jason. Paramount thought they were done with the Friday movies. Sean Cunningham, who basically owns the right to rights to the, the, the Jason Voorhees character after part one, he realizes, you know, that I, I can do something with this. He goes to New Line with the new uh, sort of uh, Jason movies that we get, like uh, Jason Goes to Hell. And Jason Goes to Hell tries to set up for Freddy vs. Jason. And I think everyone was gunning to do Freddy vs. Jason as soon as they could. And just due to circumstances, it just didn't happen. So I feel like the reason a lot of the early 90s had a horror drought was just circumstances. And then uh, Scream sort of uh, changed everything. But even even like um, you guys remember that Jim Carrey movie, The Mask? Yes, I actually just rewatched The Mask. Like uh, I think within it was like two or three months ago. I actually I actually think The Mask holds up. Like it was just like a really weird, just like very specific nostalgia attack. Like yeah, you know right. what? You know what? I well, want there's to a reason I mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. It's like that it's like, movie. Oh, actually, that movie was initially so that's a new line movie. Yeah. New Line, initially, they're working on doing Freddy vs. Jason, right? They're thinking, how can we get that working? But we also want to be able to milk the horror movie stuff still. So The Mask was originally a property from Dark Horse Comics. And if you read the comics, it's really dark and messed up and not very lighthearted comedy. The, the original intention for The Mask was to create a new Freddy Krueger character for the 90s. Really? Yes. Yeah, and then Jim Carrey got involved, and that's when it became more of a, a comedy thing. So people that think the horror genre and the slasher genre in particular was out of juice by the early 90s, I don't think it was that. I think it's just different circumstances happened where in that period from you know the early 90s to like 95 and, and 96 with Scream, you know, it, Scream sort of just changed the script on everyone. And that's when you get the sort of Dawson's Creek horror of, well, you know, Halloween H two O and whatnot. You yeah, are a I mean, beautiful I mean, man for saying that. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have a huge soft spot for the Dawson's Creek horror era. I mean, I I, I think I mentioned earlier. I just rewatched H two O. You know, I always loved the first Scream movie. You know, the uh, you know, <laughs> I always know what you did last summer. Even uh, this, but yeah, I mean, so so Jason and I did this whole episode on nineties horror and. Um, it was like a three-hour um, thing, and we <laughs> went through every movie from the ni- 90 to 94. JG, we only did 90 to 94. Yeah, 
And I mean, I think like kind of the thesis ended up being that it's like, there is this, like, there is this thing where it's like, okay, so you mentioned like as, as evidence that it hadn't run out of juice, what a huge opening weekend Freddy's dead had, which is true. Although it's 91, right? So it's like very early in this. Um, and there is this interesting thing that you do have like around this period, all of this, um, all of this stuff that like is super popular. That's like sort of, um, horror adjacent crime fiction, you know, silence, of the lambs, you know, stuff like that. And that when you do get the big slasher revival later in the decade, it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's mostly not supernatural slashers anymore. It's it's, meta. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's meta, but it's also, it's also just like, you know, these are essentially just like, you know, mundane serial killers who happen to be wearing masks. <laughs> the Noxzema girl is a serial killer. Remember in Urban? Uh, Legends? Yeah, you know, I, I like I like the first two thirds of Urban Legends so much, and then the then like that twist. It's like that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, I want you to recreate it for me. Show her lifting that guy up and like hanging the quarterback from the tree. I, I'm so curious about the physics of that scene. That movie did not, for me, it just didn't do it. And they made a, two or three of those? Urban Legends? They made three, I think? Yeah, there's three of them. And the third one, I watched it recently because it was directed by Mary Lambert, who did the oh, original wow. Cemetery. She, and she, I was just shocked watching it because I'm like, I thought, I, I like Mary Lambert as a director. Uh, and she worked with the Ramones, so she's cool. But I'm like, oh my god, this movie is not good. <laughs> it's it's the '90s is an interesting time to me because I think the feeling of the nation is just different. I really do believe in that end of history narrative definitely uh, works its way into pop culture, and there's a lot of ding dong, the witch is dead for a lot of liberals, and these are the guys that are making these movies, and they finally got their victory, right? Reagan and Bush are finally out of office. And there's no more monsters for them. The Soviet Union is gone. Yeah, and, and there really was like everything's fine for them. Like it is amazing, like to look back on how much liberals loved Bill Clinton back in the nineties. Like, oh man, I was thinking about this because I'm, I was trying to. So I, I got this little mini book out, and it's about cultures of deconstruction, and authenticity, but a lot of it takes place in the eighties because it's about the beginnings of hardcore music hardcore punk music and 84 and 94 kind of big years for me. Cause in 84 you, you get the reelection of Ronald Reagan, which kind of becomes the death nail in those original bands, um, those original hardcore bands. Um, because they, they were supposed to be this thing that, uh, that, uh, were so ant- like, this was a movement that was anti the establishment, anti this, this conservative uh, Reagan Thatcherite era, and it just nothing happened, right? And in '94, Kurt Cobain dies, who literally is the person Nirvana is kind of carrying the flag for that hardcore movement, and it gets him into the mainstream. Um, but around the time of his death, and this is all coincidental, I don't think this is any kind of conspiracy. Uh, Green Day releases their first record and you get the emergence of a new genre that people are going to call pop punk and you kind of get this safe for the mall music where we're not really lashing out at authority or if we are authority is mom and dad 
which is why groups like Rage Against the Machine, I was talking to uh, a producer of the show, M. Toussaint. We're talking about we're talking about how people look at hip hop as it's just always been this revolutionary music. And I'm like, mm, it comes out of disco. How revolutionary can it really be? And and we were talking about how the people that talk about it love to talk about themselves and the music as a revolutionary force. It definitely makes them way more important sounding. And you don't even have that in the in the 90s and 2000s, I think, because it's it's more like fuck you, mom and dad. And she goes, even people listening against Rage Against the Machine. I was like, you know, everyone that I've met that's been a Rage Against the Machine fan, not one told me they were a communist. I was going to say, I remember in high school, there was a kid that I knew that loved Rage Against the Machine. And he says to me, oh my God, Rage Against the Machine recommended this this author, uh, Noam Chomsky. And I said, yeah, I have some of Chomsky's books. And he says, can I borrow one? So I gave him uh, Chomsky's book on neoliberalism. Okay. He came back to me the next day, gave me back the book, and said, I can't read that. And I said, why? <laughs> Chomsky's a communist. <laughs> a lot of the people that listen to Rage are not as political as one would think. It, it, what? Not one person has ever told me or ever told me back in the day, oh, yeah, I'm a communist. Rage speaks to me. It sounded like, fuck you, mom, I won't do what you tell me. Even though the lyrics are very different. Shining Path is in one of their videos. It doesn't matter, right? There was there was a feeling in the air. As much as those guys were against the mall core, whatever you want to call it, they were part of it as well. I, I was going to say, you know, my favorite my favorite 90s band is Ministry. And I've always seen Ministry mm. as a very political band. But the fact is, most Ministry fans are not... Not at all. Know, they're not into politics. They're into big, dumb guitars, you know? They're the most apolitical cats you'll ever be around, right? right? And this isn't a knock on Ministry or their fans. It's just, this was a moment for a lot of people where political education was for the eggheads. You kind of have to ask yourself this question. Who wins at that end of history moment? Because the left kind of goes and retreats to academia. And they still kind of sit in a tower, in my opinion, um, and look down upon the minions. Um, Conservatives won to a certain degree, even though Bill Clinton's in office. Because he definitely espouses so many conservative values. There's a lot of bootstrapping in that first administration that people don't have a problem with um and even when you think about things like the crime bill you got to think about other provisions that were written in there to kind of wave a hand to fairness like oh this we hate crime act we're going to give people longer sentences for racial violence, even though you people aren't really facing racial violence, this isn't 1965, this is 1995, but just in case, we're going to crack down on that because this crime bill that we have here isn't racist at all. These are not the droids you're looking for. Though, though someone said the woman's protection from domestic violence is a, is a, is a total very important part of that bill that people like Bernie Sanders signed on to 
Um, I know people that have benefited from that provision of the bill personally. Um, but when we think about this moment and we think about the movies that we love and we think about this, the feeling of the country, there's a shift in my opinion to a, a collective sigh of relief. Go ahead, JG. I was just going to say, that's probably a good segue into Wes Craven's new nightmare because you mentioned, you know, sort of politics, uh, people were retreating, right? They're just like, oh, that's for the eggheads. And it's weird to me because I think Wes Craven's new nightmare is almost Craven uh, trying to retreat into a philosophical position about horror. Um, what I mean by that is that the thesis of that movie ends up being we need sort of our fictional horrors and our monsters and our nightmares uh because you know the the real horrors will come to be if we don't you know like he's trying to make an argument for the value of horror as an art form i think in that movie i think there's a little bit of that in there it's kind of a philosophical retreat within the nightmare uh sort of franchise uh that i find very interesting it, it, you know um and it sort of mirrors what you're saying about th there was a lot of retreat into the world of ideas uh on the political mm -hmm. end and i think that happens on the horror movie end with Wes Craven's new nightmare where he's getting meta and trying to, I think, make a thesis about the value of horror as a medium uh, with that movie. Um, it's, it's a very interesting movie because I don't really consider it a nightmare movie. I don't know what you guys think of that, but I always tell people that's not Freddy Krueger in the movie. In the movie, he's called the no. entity. It's it, it, not Freddy Krueger. That movie, that movie, I remember being in a theater with some friends because it comes out in 94, 95, and it blew me away. It blew me away in the theater, and I hadn't watched it. Maybe I watched it on, like, cable or something, but I hadn't watched it since Ben was over, and we were doing our Nightmare thing some months back. And Ben, I'll tell you, the whole time I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. The pacing of that movie was great. I love the fact that everybody plays themselves in that movie. Um the earthquake element to it after there was a big earthquake in Northridge around that same time. And they so, were filming it during those earthquakes too, I believe. That's yeah, that was that's if you've lived in California and experienced an earthquake, especially a big one, uh, they're rather frightening. Uh, yeah. nowhere to run. Right. Yeah, and that's like uh it's like the thing Katie Baldessaro told me about the uh you know being in the purge election year and they're filming in Rhode Island and there's like actual non-movie related gunfire going on in the background. They're like, okay, it's good. It's ambiance. Don't worry. It's not close <laughs> enough to us to hurt us. Fuck that noise. Um, I was going to say real quick too, yeah. Wes Craven's new nightmare is also weird because that movie ends up being much more restrained than it could have been. So what I mean by that is uh, the original screenplay that I think Wes pitched uh, is a lot weirder in some ways. Like he was actually going to play himself in that movie, but he was going to play a guy that lost his mind and now lives in a caravan with uh, Michael Berryman from the Hills have eyes. And yeah. he's like terrified of Freddy Krueger. And he literally like sews his eyes open so he can't sleep. And he's just obsessed with like not being killed by Freddy. So the, I mean, there was stuff in the original idea of Wes Craven's new nightmare that gets much more toned down in the uh in the finished version and i in a weird way i think it's the movie's benefit um it's a very strange movie though very I strange see, i could see that 
like I, I can see how that could actually be improved by the fact that it wasn't doing all that stuff. I mean, I think the balance the movie actually does strike is really good. I mean, it is an interesting point that it's like not a nightmare movie, not just in the sense that it's not set in the Nightmare on Elm Street universe, of course, but like, um, but that, yeah, they, uh, it's a, <laughs> it's, you know, they, uh, Freddy is like an avatar of the evil thing in, uh, in that, uh, that movie, but, you know. Well, even his glove is different. You know, yeah. like he doesn't have the glove, he just has like the weird skeletal hand, yeah, hands. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, but like they do also do this thing, like, um, like they really, like they really sit with the grief of the loss of Heather Langenkab's husband in a way that they never sit with anybody's loss in any of those movies. Like that, that that's just like really foreign to what those movies are. To also, like... that's another scene that scared the shit out of me as a kid. Is that that's another thing? Ears, eyes, and groins. Do not go for the, for the special effects guy that's married to Heather Langenkamp and the the claws going after the guy's groin. I'm just no, because that's her real husband, right? Her I real, actually don't know. Her real no, husband's a special effects guy. Okay. Um, Wes Craven special effects guy. He did the special effects for uh, Serpent and Rainbow. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and like I don't know. Let's say you know, but I think they do have like a really good balance there because um, even though they are recreating a lot of the beats from the original, uh, the original movie, and it does again, have that same kind of slasher fairy tale thing going on that the original did. um, That's obviously long since gotten lost in the original franchise. um, It's also, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the whole real world element of it, like it is, there is actually in a way some much creepier stuff going on in that movie, you know, because of the constant endangerment of the kid uh, and, and what you sort of feel like, you know, I mean, we were one of the, like you're always told from the first movie that Freddy Krueger before he died, right. was a child killer. But, you know, since, since, uh, since dying, and becoming supernatural, he seems to be like exclusively interested in sexy teenagers, you know, not, uh, you know, not children. Yeah, he's uh, changed. He's grown. He's got a lot of time to mature and think about what he really wants, and he wants some experience. <laughs> yeah. So, whereas the entity that's manifesting as Freddy and New Nightmare uh, actually is going after uh, this this little kid, which is like scary in a different way. Um, and you know, the, the sort of sense of like reality being violated, like is scary. There's a lot of interesting ways too, that it builds a sense of dread that you, that isn't built in the same way in the previous movies. So, you know, I, I, it always sticks out in my head. I think the last scene where you see Robert Englund playing himself in that he's on the phone and then he looks over and he sees the painting of Freddy Krueger, uh, that, that he was drawing. And then the next time you hear about Robert England, they're like, yeah, he booked it out of town, you know, and it really builds that sense of dread. Like everyone is very nervous and, totally. you know, they feel something is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, uh, and even the, the stuff that goes to the meta commentary that you were talking about, the way that it's sort of going um, to this, like, yeah, I mean, essentially his defense of horror movies and that is, I mean, it's it's like... Well, the only way to stop the entity is to make yeah, yeah. a Freddy movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, essentially, it's a version of, like, 
the oldest defense of fiction about upsetting subjects, right? Which is Aristotle and the poetics where he's talking about tragedy and he says that you get the, uh, it's a way to get catharsis of fear and pity by essentially uh, bringing them up in a controlled setting so you can purge them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's very much echoing, uh, echoing that, but like the fact that he is playing with that in that movie also gets like some of the most uncomfortable moments in the movie, like the, uh, the doctor, who's who's like you let your child watch your movies i love that that's like a theme in the movie that you know because that was also still going on there was still a lot of like you're letting your kids do this with music we're just getting out of the whole two live crew uh getting banned people going to jail selling uh certain uh albums that's still a thing when this movie comes out um kind of have to remember that it's funny to think about now when you have like number one songs that are literally about the color of your butthole but uh there was a time <laughs> yeah there's a yeah think back about how you know like how worked up tipper gore was about prince of all things um yeah 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 like prince wasp had a song called fuck like a beast Yes. <laughs> and uh that that's I remember seeing the cover for that and it's like he had a cod piece with blades on it and I was like that that doesn't seem like fun. Like this guy doesn't seem like he really wants to like, don't fuck fun. that guy. Like don't fuck the beast man. Yeah. Not going to work out well for you. Yeah. And you post a picture of yourself in the cod piece with the you know blades coming out on you know Tinder and like nothing good's gonna happen. Nothing good's gonna happen to you if you have the fuck like a beast as your Tinder profile. Yeah. If I ever do another Tinder account, that will be my profile pick. <laughs> it might work better than I had Pee Wee Herman and Clarence Thomas as my profile <laughs> pick. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, I mean, so it's also obviously uh, since we were just talking. Uh, a little while ago about uh, the uh, uh, about kind of later uh, later um, <laughs> later meta horror movies and all that stuff um, like at the end of the movie the um, you know Freddy's Temple right mm-hmm. is is like I mean that's like pretty clearly the inspiration for like the temple at the end of cabin in the woods. Mm. I mean, this movie is also a direct line to scream and what scream is going to be. Totally. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And, uh, and scream just scream comes out. There's two movies again, 84, the horror genre gets revitalized with nightmare on Elm street. Uh, 1996, the horror genre, you know, comes to life with Scream. Yeah. I mean, it it even killed the cool covers. What about, what about Nightmare on Elm Street movies? Those were scary. I know Wes Craven would make a point about saying, actually, I didn't write that line, but he sure didn't cut it. No, I think he thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Um. But there's, there's, you know, again, I think we don't look at slashers. We talked about this on the 90s show. Please go back and listen to that. Also, JG and I did a great interview with filmmaker Brian Yizna, um, talking about his movies, Society and Reanimator and all those others. But 
there's something to be said about the 90s and the way we don't call horror horror. There's thrillers. Seven and Silence of the Lambs are two movies that everybody quotes. What's in the box? Yeah, I mean, they're they're very, like, I mean, they're definitely, like, seven especially, right? That's, like, kind of gray horror, right? I mean, it's, like... It, it's gory as shit. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, like... In some ways, the horror elements of it are like cranked up much more than most horror movies would be. I mean, I think if it, I think if the, I think if the material were handled differently, like we'd definitely think about it that way. I mean, it's like um, Morgan Freeman is Mister Horror in the '90s, but we don't call those horror movies, right? They're murdering the shit out of women all over the woods. Well, even even on the lower rent end of that, right? Like all the indie. If you talk to a lot of indie filmmakers from the early 90s people like fred Olin ray or jim wynorski those people that came out of the sort of roger schoolman uh, roger corman school of hard knocks indie filmmaking i mean it is true as much as i said i don't think the horror genre or slashers were entirely dead in the early 90s even on the low rent indie end really things were moving towards you know the erotic thriller boom mm. You know, so like basic instinct, yeah. and a lot of those movies, oddly enough, do have like slasher elements. If you watch basic the, instinct is a know, slasher. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basic instinct is look. There's an erotic element. Superheroes are a thing. We got to remember, Batman was massive, and Batman did something that only Freddy was doing at the time. Batman sold toys. Star Wars was done. George Lucas said bye bye. Almost 10 years beforehand. So, Kenner was so desperate for another Star Wars movie. Like, hey, we wrote you a treatment. <laughs> Can we get some toys out of this bitch? <laughs> People were always looking for merchandising opportunities. And so you get all the Corman. I think Corman did like Black Scorpion and shit like that. Those. Yes, he did. For Showtime. Yeah, showtime, yeah. I'm sorry. Um. They made way too many Batman films in that moment. Not until you get The Crow, Blade, and The Matrix do those movies actually get really good. Mm -hmm. um, they figure it out, with, especially with Blade. They really figure out the formula. Maybe maybe The Crow. I'll take that back because The Crow comes out first. I guess The Crow, they figure out the formula for this kind of comic book. I mean, I think Seven, like, I think we'd think of Seven as a horror movie if uh if it was and, and silence the lambs too i think same principle right oh, like yeah if, if the i think we would think about it that way if the people that we were following around for most of the movie were actually like the victims or almost victims of it rather than the people trying to to figure it out right like like that uh i mean it's funny because i mean obviously we're talking about the nightmare on elm street movies and when it, i said something somewhere on the 90s stream and you you pointed out then right there are there are a few scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street that are you know the cops puzzling over what's going on right but um, that's not you know that's not like most of the movie right that's that's a that's like a small you know that's like a small piece of it and it's you know and it's and it's really there to like tie into the sort of larger thing about the adults being clueless and you know not being able to protect anybody. I I look at that era. And I also look at the actors that are in those movies and the awards they won from those movies. They never would have won those awards if they were horror movies. Yeah. And 
I think we have to remember that even when we look at horror movies to this day, what's the first thing we do if we see a big name actor in a horror movie? We go, holy shit, I didn't know so-and-so was in this movie. Because we look at horror movies as less than. Even us as fans, they're not going to be looked at in the same regard as these thrillers because so much schlock got produced because once people found out, hey, you want to make turn a real quick profit in Hollywood? Make a horror movie. You don't need a lot of money to do it. And even decades before John Carpenter, there was drive-in horror movies that made money that were crap. People like to be entertained and mildly frightened and to laugh at silly people dying. It sounds dark. It's the truth, right? Um, They are a release, a cathartic release. And every so often someone gets a little bit of a budget and they do some magic with these movies. I still think Toby Hooper is such an underrated director. Amen. Because a, he never gets his credit for poltergeist. Everybody always thinks it's Spielberg because it's got Spielberg shine. And number two, uh, life force. Pretty entertaining film. Even if that woman had clothes on, it's entertaining. Have you have you ever seen his prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street? Who Hoopers? Toby Hooper did the fir- the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares, <gasps> and it's literally it's an origin story. Where Freddy goes to trial? Yes, yes. that's the origin yes. story. Toby Hooper directed it. Yeah, and that is available on Amazon Prime. Yep. Thank you, Stephen Guy. Says Life Force rules. Toby Hooper also made the Fun House. The Funhouse, um, you know, my favorite of his from the 80s is probably uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I love it. Is that, that movie like is it. basically saying, that movie is basically saying, screw yuppies. The whole movie is just them killing yuppies. And then the other thing is, yeah, the family got rich by, you know, cannibalizing people and then selling them as chili. I mean, the, first, you know? like, the first part of it is that. I mean, it's like my whole thing about that movie is that. I was so excited about it. Like I've only seen the ones, but it's like, I was so excited about the first part of it. And then it was like, wait, what? Right. Cause it's like, uh, like the opening kill is so good and the highway that's like, Oh shit. Right. These people are going to be in the city. They're going to be like, they, they do all this setup that like everybody's there for the game and they're there, you know, they like, you know, that like it's, it's this whole setup for this, that like these this this family is going to be going around like massacring people uh in in this and then it, it what it feels like is like oh did they just run out of money partway through this? I can tell you what happened yeah it wasn't that they ran out of money there's actually footage of all the cut scenes from Texas Chain there's a whole yuppie massacre scene where they just kill a bunch of yuppies then they go to the movie theater <laughs> and they kill people at the movie theater and Joe Bob Briggs shows up and i guess they just thought it was too much and it would pad out the running time too much. But there's literally a scene where they take a night out on town and kill all the yuppies. Yeah. Cause like all that, there's like four scenes that they seem to yeah. be setting up at the beginning of the movie, you know, with the chili yeah. cook-off and the game, the radio station, everything. It's like, Oh, this looks like such an awesome movie. And then to me, it felt like, Oh, we're just going to go back to the house and do the first movie again. But like, I mean, assume there were edits. That's how I look at stuff like that. Yeah, what's really sad is like it's probably 10 to 20 minutes of footage that got cut out where between um, – uh, what's her name? Stretch going to the 
the layer and you know the family finding her there's a whole like 10 to 20 minutes where they would have gone out on town and the footage exists but it canon film group did not take good care of it so the only footage we have and there are you can find cuts of it online that insert the footage in but it looks really grainy and bad and it's work print style stuff but that's why the movie feels very odd in a way yeah uh oh no that makes sense um i mean the yeah like again the first one first texas chainsaw massacre perfect movie uh the uh the the second one like the setup excited me so much that like then like yeah the the delivery and the uh the second act i was you know uh i, I didn't love but um but uh but okay so uh you, seen, got, you still haven't seen life force though right i have not seen life force i think matilda may oh my are god are you if you are you alone it's a funny question to ask in a horror movie stream. Yes, I am alone. <laughs> is the call coming from inside the house? Uh, <laughs> you should watch Life Force. It is. Uh, I might. Yeah. Just watch it. Just take take me and JG's word for it. You will enjoy. It's a good. It's a great take on the vampire story. Uh, Steve rails back. Uh, Luke Picard slash Professor X with hair. Um, who else is in that movie? I don't know, but that, that, that's enough right there. Okay. Well, I've not seen that yet. You know what I have seen though? is Freddy versus Jason. Freddy versus Jason. Cause we were, we're coming. Real, real quick. Can I, can I comment on one more thing with Wes Craven's <laughs> new nightmare? Yeah. I just wanted to say there's a, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get in a cheap plug because I like these people, but there's a, a YouTube channel called the horror show. Uh, run by Cecil Laird, and he just did a fan sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Now, you hear fan sequel, you're probably like, oh, is this some backyard movie thing? No, it's not. It was a professionally made movie, just came out last month. Miko Hughes, who plays Dylan in Wes Craven's New Nightmare, the little kid, he's in this sequel called Dylan's New Nightmare. And it's actually a really good fan sequel 30 years later and they're probably going to do more of them now and they're trying to get heather involved and potentially even robert england to do wow. uh, a feature-length version so uh if you go on youtube and just look up dylan's new nightmare if you're a fan of wes craven's new nightmare you have to see dylan's Ooh. new nightmare i mean I, I i like it so much that in my head it's canon damn some of these fan fiction films that's the power of the internet right there yeah right that's the internet well they're, they're much more professionally made now yes the people, so. these these nightmare not nightmares friday 13th fan movies too are way more professionally i didn't know it was a fan film i watched one of them the other day never hike alone yes was that the one yeah i had no idea they just released a sequel to that, that too yeah um but, but yeah i just had to mention dylan's new nightmare if you like wes craven's new nightmare definitely watch that nice so ben you start your essay off by talking about watching Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I was um, – so this is uh, actually, other than the best forgotten 2010 remake uh, – We'll Freddy not talk vs. about that tonight. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, you no, know, it's, it's just – I, I think it's just as well to just, you know um, – 
to uh to just erase that from our collective memory but uh in um other than that uh freddy vs jason is the only one of these movies i actually saw in the theater uh i watched it with my little brother at celebration cinema in lansing michigan and uh yeah i, I start out the essay by uh recounting uh being pulled over for speeding on my way home from uh watching that movie and uh the cop asked you know you know in the sort of you like series of probing questions they'll do sometimes to try to get you talking for a little while so they can tell if you're drunk or whatever. Uh, he, uh, he was like, Oh, where are you coming from? I was like, Oh, from the movie theater. I was like, Oh, what, you know, what did you watch? And I said, Freddie versus Jason. And it's like, his eyes lit up and he forgot about the ticket he was about to give me. And, uh, and we just spent the next 10 minutes talking about Freddie and Jason. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that, that sort of, small silly interaction um kind of says something i mean i guess some of what jg was talking about earlier kind of speaks to this about how much anticipation there had been for this movie right people have been waiting for um for this crossover for a very very long time you know uh well that's how jason goes to hell ends when you have freddie's hand pop up and grab the hockey mask down yeah yep and that's back in 93 this is coming out nine years later yeah yeah or 10 uh, a super a super dope soundtrack yeah i mean it, and it is funny because it's like if you go back and watch that uh that really is just a nightmare in elm street movie that jason is in right it's it, it's it's not really a, a friday the 13th movie and i think there might be a couple reasons for that um you know i mean part of it is just kind of a consequence of the I, I I mean part of it I think actually is an artistic reason. I mean it's just kind of the consequence of the uh the personalities, right? That uh that so much of the you know, so much of what classically makes Jason scary is really the sort of um vacantness, right? That he's just this force of nature going around killing people mm-hmm. um, you know, and you know, silently, right? Uh whereas Freddie's overflowing with personality, so that kind of makes sense on that, you know, on that level and, you know, and, and part of it, I'm sure I, th- I think is what JG was maybe uh, just about to get into. Uh, you know, it's, it looked like he was about to say something about this part of it. You know, there's sort of, I'm sure they're kind of mundane, like behind the scenes uh, reasons having to do with how the movie was made. But like, also I, I think it just kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, it, I think it speaks to uh, the, I think it speaks to the sort of power of that basic nightmare in Elm street imagery that it, it ends up feeling so much that way. I mean, this is uh, one of the things that, you know, Jason, when you were, um, uh, you know, you were off cleaning up blood, uh, you know, we were talking about a little bit was the, uh, the, the way that in some of the nightmare movies, they feel the need to put all this effort into explaining how he comes back. And some of them, they're just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Don't worry about it. He's back. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of somewhere in between because uh, the whole excuse for Jason is this uh, that, you know, what, what does he say at the beginning? I've scoured the depths. You know, Freddie says, I, you know, scoured the depths of hell and I found, you know, I found you and, you know, you can't die. So uh, I can, you know, you were just sleeping so I can bring you back. And then if you kill people on Elm Street, they'll think it was me. And, you know, then uh, they're kind of hearkening back to um, the Freddie rules from the very first movie that it's that, it, that it's the fear that gives yeah. him his power. So people, if people are afraid of him, then uh then that's why um you know then that's like where he gets his power to actually kill people 
in uh in his dreams and then they start fighting because they have to start fighting or else the title of the movie doesn't make sense right but like you know overall it does feel like it's kind of 95 percent a nightmare in elm street movie it's definitely a nightmare film first and foremost um i don't know it's a weird movie for me to watch for a few reasons first off i get i kind of get taken out of it in a weird way because i I know all the actors that are in it because I've seen so many low-budget Canadian movies. <laughs> and, no, I, can, I literally, I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh, I noticed that. Oh, that's in that part of Vancouver. I haven't even been to Vancouver. That's how how many movies uh, from Canada I've seen. And the cast is really good. Um, you know, not just Robert Englund, but uh, Gary Laughlin, who plays one of the cops in it. Uh, Brendan Fletcher, who I think is an underrated actor. He's one of the kids that's... Uh, in the hospital taking the hypnosil, the blonde kid. Um, and of course, Catherine Isabel from uh, yeah. Ginger Snaps, who I absolutely adore. Ginger and Snaps. Had a massive crush First on. of all, can we say Ginger Snaps, the most underrated Canadian horror movie of all time? It's my favorite werewolf movie. Ginger, Ben, have you seen any of the Ginger Snaps movies? Uh, I haven't. I remember Oof. I started to watch number one once, and I don't, I don't remember what happened that night that I never finished the movie. But yeah, I, I have not. Ginger Snaps is worth one and two. I don't. I never saw the third, but uh, Ginger Snaps one and two definitely worth a watch. Um, I love those two Canadian horror movies. When we talk about horror movies of the '90s, those two do that whole WB uh, teen star thing very, very. They do it right. Yeah, I think mainly because we didn't recognize those people from our American television. That that helped. Like that, that for movies that are trying to do something new, like let's admit, if you're trying to do something new, don't use big time actors. Why does Rogue One work so well? Yeah, the script is great, but you don't really know outside of Forrest Whitaker, there's not a lot of big time actors in that movie that are carrying that film. Uh. Yeah, you don't like Rogue One, and you're like, I don't give. No, a no, shit. I I actually do like Rogue One, uh, and you know, and I I I definitely, I definitely hate the rest of the prequels in a way that you don't, but you know, but I I do like uh I do like Rogue One because you know it's uh, you know, I mean it's the, I mean it's the only one that actually <laughs> makes the series make more sense instead of less sense, and uh, it also you know and and it's 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 honestly like i mean as much as it does suffer a little bit at the end i think from being a prequel that like some of the energy to me is drained from it at the end because it's like literally leading up to showing us a scene that we've already seen but uh up until then i liked it a lot it was like uh it's a good like despite being a free prequel it actually felt like you were watching something new in a way that it doesn't when you're watching any of the other prequels for that matter and they have a, and also it's the only one that has, like, honestly, the way, like, the rebellion is handled in Rogue One is not only, is actually, like, objectively smarter than uh, the, the original, <laughs> the original trilogy, right? Because it's like, in the original trilogy, you know, because cause George Lucas, God bless him, can only conceive of things being completely good or completely evil. Mm-hmm. And, like, in the... Um, in the original trilogy, there's just like the rebellion and in, in rogue one, it's like, no, like every real revolution that's ever happened in human history, there are going to be different factions that don't like each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to admit though, the ending of rogue one 
makes Darth Vader ominous again. <laughs> yeah. Whether you want to admit that or not, like making Darth Vader evil again, much like New Nightmare was like, we have to make Freddy scary again. Changing the color of him, getting rid of the metal claws for the bony things. That's important because until that movie it familiarizes him, it's like, oh, yeah. shit, what's that? What, who's, why is he not doing the joke thing? He became a, a kid's thing. Kids dug him. Again, 10 years old going to the theater to go see Nightmare 3. So this guy isn't scary anymore. Uh, Rogue One, that ending scene gave me goosebumps. And yes, I went and watched Star Wars right after it because Darth Vader was the man of nightmares like he was for me when I was a kid. So, no, I haven't watching Andor. I've only seen, and I canceled my Disney Plus subscription because I can't afford it. Whoa. Uh, you guys are talking over my head. I've, I've never been into Star Wars. That oh, much. Wow. I like it let's well enough. To, but. Let's go back to Freddy versus Jason. Yes. Uh, sorry, sorry. I, I did want to say one more thing. I, I agree with you about the, um, the actors not being like well-knowns, but like I said, I think some of the acting in it is a little bit above what I usually expect from a nightmare or a, Jason movie because all the actors in it I'm familiar with the actors in it and a lot of them are actors that that had been working since they were like seven years old Um, and I do think it's it just feels like a much more slick uh, professional movie than a lot of the other ones and some people that's you know why they don't like it but I think it works to the movie's benefit I agree wholeheartedly it makes it watchable yeah Yeah. and it's a fun movie it's like I mean it's not um it, I mean, I think in both good ways and bad ways, right? I mean, it's like for better or worse, like it's just, uh, it's just a much, it's, it is a much simpler movie than, than like most of the other ones. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, yeah, okay, there's this whole, you know, elaborate supernatural premise about, you know, how these both of these guys are in the movie and they're coming to conflict, or whatever. But it's like, right. basically, it's like just a very meat and potatoes slasher movie. Uh, but I think it's like a very well executed one. I mean, it's like, it's a, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's doing what it's doing in a very competent way. It's fun to watch. It was, you know, it was fun to watch back then. It was fun to rewatch the couple of times I've done in the last couple of years. And, and you've got to remember too. I mean, um, Ronnie, you, the director was just coming off of Bride of Chucky. He knew how to mix the sort of new metal sort of aesthetics of the time with, you know, some comedy, some horror, uh, the only thing that makes this movie hard to watch for me at times is um, some of the backstory. There's a there's a bit of a Me Too-ish element mm-hmm. uh, to the making of this movie. So uh, Catherine Isabel, who I mentioned earlier from Ginger Snaps, she plays Gibby in this movie. I wish more people would talk about it because I'm, I've been told this has really affected her over the years in different ways. Um, and it's, it's an open secret. You can look this up. But, uh, you know... She is supposed to do a shower scene in this movie, and she's like, I'm not showing anything. It's not in my contract. And Ronnie Yu, I think, pushed her very hard to do do nudity, and I don't think – she didn't do it in the end. They used a body double um, because it wasn't in her contract, so she won on that account. But I don't know. Just that sort of uh, – the stories I've heard about Ronnie Yu trying to get her to do the nude scene and being very aggressive about it. When I see that particular scene in the movie, it kind of 
I, I get a little bit cringy when I see that. But um, other than that, I actually really like this entry. Um, the soundtrack on this movie has a bunch of new metal bands that you you mentioned it was a new metal soundtrack. Typo Negative is on that soundtrack. Is this before Peter Steele died? When did Peter Steele die? I thought he died. Oh, I guess this was before he died. Uh, uh, who else is on this soundtrack? Seven Dust. I like them. Sepultura with Mike Patton, JG. Hatebreed, In Flames, Kill Switch Engage. This is a metalcore ass metalcore. Wasn't this a double disc? Oh, he died in 2012. Okay. Uh, this was the best soundtrack of all of them right here, dude. And it's also the only Freddy movie with uh. Weird Alice in Wonderland references. Remember the caterpillar? Caterpillar Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Slipknot is on this soundtrack. Oh wow. From Autumn to Ashes is on this soundtrack. Jesus. (laughs) This is a this is a we need to dude, I so wish this was in the champagne room so we could play some songs from the soundtrack. Roadrunner Records did the soundtrack to this. Do you remember Roadrunner Records? I mean, it is. I, I feel like in a weird way, Freddy versus Jason might actually, despite some of what we said earlier, be more like of its specific time than like maybe any of these movies, right? Because it's like yeah, all of the other ones. It's like even if like the subjects, the themes that they're covering, maybe says something about the cultural moment that produced them. It's still there's still a sort of there's still a sort of sense that you get from like all of these that it's like kind of could be set whenever, whereas like um, I don't know I feel like Freddy versus Jason especially like the rave scene uh, like that's uh, that that feels so incredibly specific to the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, two thousand and three. This came out August twelfth, two thousand and three. Huh. Did you ever go to a rave, Ben, in two thousands? Uh I never went to a rave. I mean, I certainly went to see some like electronic music at, you know, like the sort of thing they might listen to at one. But yeah. I have uh it's a very um again, like that just feels so uh specific in a way that like I really can't think of anything in um I really can't think of anything in the uh, any of the other movies that feel quite that like specific, like, oh, this is a scene that only kind of would have made sense during the five year period <laughs> when this movie was made. And it's and, and in general, I don't know if this is just because the early 2000s is like, you know, whatever. It's like a time I was in my early 20s and it's like I was very aware of like stuff that was going on around me in a way that it's like, you know, I don't know when like. Freddy's dead came out, I guess I was 11. Right. So it's like, I don't, I don't know that I would have. So maybe it's just that I don't recognize stuff, but like in a general way, that's like a little bit harder to pin down. uh, I I just feel like every, everything about this movie, kind of every scene, every line of dialogue, like it's like that just, you know, it, it just all feels very, very 2003 to me in a way that like, you know, I don't know that, uh, what do we say? 2000 and uh, like, you know, 
number five comes out in like 1987. You know, it's like, I don't know that you could quite say the same thing about 1987 and that. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, if I go to TJ before I come up to Los Angeles, I'm going to get you the Freddy vs. Jason soundtrack, Ben, so you can play it in your car. Nice. What, uh, what out of curiosity is your favorite scene in this movie? I, I don't know if we can go around sharing that, but I have one scene that I love in this movie that above all the rest that I just find hilarious. Kelly Rowland. Uh, what's that? Kelly Rowland death. That's good. For some reason, I always, I always bust out laughing at the scene where Gib runs out uh, and they're, they're talking to the cops and she just runs out, pushes everyone out of the way and says, what the fuck do you think? She's like yelling at this cop who is just a dunderhead. And every time I see that, I just bust out. I don't know what it is, but I find that interaction just hilarious. There's a lot of comedic elements in this movie that I think people. They, again, they, they found don't the don't sweet know. spot. They found the sweet spot for yeah. that film. Ben, what's your favorite uh, moment in this movie? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think like maybe uh, it's actually like a creepy moment. Like I really like the thing where they're in the uh, the mental institution and they're all the kids who like wouldn't stop dreaming. And so they like gave them so much hypnosil they went into comas and they're, they all like sit up to like point, you know, it's uh, it's like actually just kind of a nice little, you know, whatever. It's like, it's the kind of thing that there is a lots of movies, but it's like, I think it's just like a nicely executed little creepy beat, you know? So that, that definitely, uh, that definitely comes to mind. Um, I, uh, I think maybe, I don't know, the scene where they're in the van and uh, our uh, final girl has like, has that like nightmare where she's like having the vision of like everybody deciding that she, you know, that she needs to be, uh, you know, that like she needs to be sacrificed to Freddie because she's a virgin. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like, a, I don't know. It's like very goofy and that. Again, I don't know. I, I I don't know that I can defend this exactly, but it's like, you know, again, somehow there's something that feels just like it's just soaked in early two thousandsness. <laughs> so, what do you guys think of the whole element of uh, Jason being afraid of water? Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's funny. Everyone always says to me, horror movie fans are always like, "Yeah, you know, they should have got Kane Hodder to do Jason." And I'm like, well, there's a reason he was not cast in this. And it's probably because I know Kane and Kane would have said, Jason wouldn't do that. He wouldn't be afraid of water. He's literally in water in Jason Takes Manhattan. You know, and I'm, I, I know the a lot of people The first time you see him, he's like jumping out of the water. Like he's clearly hanging. Right, right, right. But I know people that complain about that for continuity's sake, but I'm like, I don't know. I overlook that. I don't care. <laughs> like, I hate the Jasons. That, that was... There are horror movie movie purists that really throw a middle finger to the Friday Thirteenth franchise because it's so disjointed. There's zombie Jason. There's there's body swapper Jason. Yeah. There's there's, there's did he grow up over to like Jason? Yeah, very quickly. No, yeah. He makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely true. And and yeah. so it's harder to follow. Michael Myers gets muddled. Anybody that says, "Oh, I love Halloween four, five, and 6 I'm like, "Do you?" <laughs> yes, I do actually. I love the look, Horn trilogy. Look, only you we'll about, look, only you're allowed to say that because I believe <laughs> you. 
but people that like that that aren't you they're like clippers fans to me it's like you don't exist you don't exist <laughs> you're not real you yeah. are the tooth fairy i mean i think the fact that there is so little you know that the, like the continuity is so all over the place to start with kind of makes it hard to get mad at um freddie versus jason for violating it it's like well okay i mean that's like clearly it's all just kind of up for grabs here so it's like there you know it's yes this is not a fact about jason that exists in previous movies but like whatever it makes sense like i'm fine with it um someone says freddie versus jason low cut jeans lip gloss slow time effects had this movie came out two years later it fall on the platinum dune hostile torture porn spectrum uh first of all i still have a pair of low cut jeans so I don't know why you're dissing them. They don't flare at the bottom, but that's not the point. JG, do you have any low-cut jeans? No. <laughs> ben, are you uh, a low-cut? I have like four or five pairs of jeans. They all look exactly the same. Uh, it's uh, dude. Yeah. I mean, I bought them on accident. They were like really inexpensive. And I was like, oh, wow, these are really cheap. And it's the size. And I don't try anything on. And I was like, why do they do this? You know what? I, I wanted to comment on something. One of your the comments said, what JG doesn't like has to be a very short list. That's probably true to a large extent. I'm very easily entertained. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Can you believe, by the way, that some of the original people that were offered this movie, by the way, over the like course of 10 years, because this was in development. I've met so people years. that wrote scripts for this fucking movie at a horror convention. Yeah, there's insane scripts. They, they, at one point, there was a script where they were going to have uh, two guys that thought they were Freddy and thought they were Jason <laughs> fighting each other. They weren't even the real Freddy and Jason. Uh, you know, Peter Jackson got offered. Yeah. Guillermo yeah. del Toro got offered it. Like, dude, the amount of people that have written scripts for this fucking movie, this movie's for was it nine years, it sat in just purgatory, until finally the time was right. And we have to admit, that time was right. They could do a sequel right now, I think, because there's so many different kinds of comedic uh. horror movies, really dark, dark comedies. That you can do a Freddy vs. Jason 2 if you want to. I yeah, just I don't Maybe they'll finally do one of those uh Joe Blow videos was talking about how uh after the success of uh Freddy vs. Jason, there was all this interest in a uh Michael Myers uh versus Pinhead movie. Uh and there were like actually like treatments that were worked up for this and stuff, and you know, Obviously, they ended up decided against it, but there were like a few different ideas for how that would go that were going around. The downside to Freddy vs. Jason, and if they do make another one or they do some kind of Marvel Universe Freddy vs. Jason, is if that movie was to mildly hit. And again, like we said, they don't they don't have to hit like Marvel movies. They just have to turn enough profits and do it again. We would be so tired of horror movie crossovers. Yeah, I mean, well, you had Freddy vs. Jason 2003 and Alien vs. Predator in 2004, so, you know, uh, I always wanted, you know, it's like, oh, what I really want to see is uh, Freddy vs. Alien, you know, like, I, I want to see what the alien dreams are. <laughs> that either, either you're going to have, like, Freddy be, like, a Wolverine-type character in this weird universe, or you're going to have the Dirty Dozen kind of uh, Washington got the scariest monsters together to <laughs> stop Lex Luthor and 
some other made up bad guy because they're going to steal a gun that turns the sun purple and everybody dies. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's my fear of, of that thing happening that they would try to, cause that's what everybody wants to do. Let's put all the bad guys together and act like good guys. And we could just sell shit tons of merchandise. I mean, who, who wouldn't want the Freddie, Jason, Leatherface, Michael Myers team of killers to stop some sort of evil plot? You know, we're, we're right in the middle of uh, U.S. eating some good propaganda, so it would probably be like a terrorist plot from some brown people. <laughs> no one you know, there's, there's these brown people, but... There's been talk over the years of trying to do like a... Uh, a horror movie version of the expendables with all these like horror luminaries. They tried to do it with a really horrible movie called um, death house a few years back. And it was just awful. And I'm like, I don't know that we're probably going to get to that point where you're going to have Michael, Freddie, Chucky, Leprechaun, and, and everyone else team up with each other to get to, to defeat. Leprechaun. <laughs> they did. Marvel had something like that. There is a team of supernatural there's a there's a werewolf, there's Morbius, I think. And there's somebody else, I forget. And there is a they have a supernatural team. But I I could see these guys look as we're saying this, if this happens, if this happens, guys, just know these motherfuckers owe us some money. Just and and if you do it New Line Cinema, we coming for you. I know. But I'm not gonna lie. I would go see that movie and it would be the worst propaganda BS in the history of propaganda BS. I'm telling you, it'd be a terrorist plot. They're trying to thwart and the terrorists aren't afraid of anything. And uh, they're like, the only thing that can stop them is if we get someone to attack them in the dreams. And then Freddie goes, I can do this, but I need a team. And then yeah. he's like, <laughs> and then Jason Voorhees. Myers and Leatherface. There you go. Yeah. Now that'd be like a good new, you know, the, on Twitter when you're like, people are harassing some like, you know, leftist writer. Be like, you know, why haven't you condemned Hamas even though they actually have like 20 times? You know, that's like, you know, it's like, you know, even Freddy Krueger was willing to put aside his differences with the U.S. government to attack these people. <laughs> Like you know, it's it's like this. There's someone like this, and they're about to make it, and it's gonna be horrible and great, and we're gonna watch it, and then write think pieces about how much U.S. propaganda it is. Uh, that, I, I, I keep imagining that that's the dream of Jason Blum from Blumhouse. <laughs> like, no, for years, I swear to God, when he when when Blumhouse got The Exorcist and they got Halloween, I was thinking they're gonna try to get the Jason movies next. Because that was in legal limbo for the longest time, and then they're they're definitely gunning for Freddy, and they're going to try to make an entire slasher movie universe, and it's going to be the worst thing ever. Please do not do this, Jason Blum. <laughs> My God! Right now, Jason Blum is listening. Those guys from TIR got a got a great idea here. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Why do I sound so much older than I really am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, so Zach in the comments, I also uh, I also love Cabin in the Woods uh, for the uh, for the record. Uh, very into that movie. Pretty soon machine learning will make this possible. I can't wait. 
Someone, so the other day, I think it was the show you were on, Ben. We were joking about don't say Ibrahim X. Kendi's name three times. Were you Candy, on that show? Candyman. Candy <laughs> somebody, somebody made a Kendi. <laughs> they put Kendi's face. I don't know who did it. If you're watching the show right now, please send that to me on whatever. You, I think I saw it on Instagram. Somebody did a Kendi man thing. Please send it to TIR or Jason Miles Instagram. That was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I want to pass it to everybody. And we will give you props. I got to ask you before we wrap, uh, because I know you're probably trying to wrap this up, Jason. We've been on for three hours to help it. Um, what? Uh, so someone said, I have a very short list of movies that I'm not big fans mm-hmm. of. I have to admit, Cabin in the Woods, although I like it, it is one of those that sort of rubs me the wrong way. Because I just feel like Joss Whedon's attitude in that movie is, oh, there's nothing new under the sun with horror. It's kind of just a, a dumb, stupid, dead genre. Interesting. I, I really did not feel like it was a love letter. Um, and I don't understand. Well, I get why people like it, and I like it to a certain extent. But there's also a part of me that is very annoyed by that movie. Okay, that's <laughs> interesting. I mean, I, uh, I I never got that vibe from it. Hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just my reading. But I can see, I just, I can I think see where you get a, that. I can totally see where you yeah. get that from that movie. And I mean, it's cool that he riffs on the tropes and whatnot, but I, I just, I think there's too many people in the horror movie world that uh, think there's nothing new under the sun, and there's a lot of new stuff out there. It's just no one's willing to look for that. No, uh, well, kind it's of the thing. Everyone wants to. Burbank's new. I haven't seen that in a movie. Well, no, that's true. Merman. That's true. Yeah. Because well, it, remember they do the whole thing where like. Josh from the West Wing, you know, it's like keeps wanting the people to pick the merman and uh, and they never do. And then like the merman kills him at the end. Merman. That's that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Actually. There's look, I'm still catching up on movies I just never saw. There's so many movies I never saw. Every time I watch one of these amazing, I'll do a plug for these people again, In Search of Darkness documentaries. When they finally got finished with their 1990 to 94 one, I'm sure I'm going to find so many movies in that. I had house guests here because um, there's another documentary that I'm working on um, about displaced Ukrainians and the punk scene in Tbilisi, in Georgia, Tbilisi. Um, and I put on the science fiction In Search of Tomorrow, which finally hit Amazon, where they stream them or you could buy them. And did you finally watch that, Ben, or did you even start that? I don't think I have. I will also say that in general, my relationship to the In Search of Darkness movies is like, I always enjoy what I watch, but like, because they're all like five hours long, hours long, you know, it's like I I never, I never even really go into it with the goal of seeing the whole thing. I just kind of like, you know, it's like, ah, I'll watch some of this for a while. They're great to me. They're the greatest go to sleep movies. Uh, JG, if you have Amazon or Shutter, you have Shutter. Uh, definitely watch In Search of Darkness if you haven't already. I feel like you probably watched it already and own probably half of the catalog of those, of those movies. No, I, I know In Search of Darkness. I, I think stuff like In Search of Darkness is really good because, like I said, I think the biggest issue I have when people talk about horror movies now is, um, and part of it's just because you know the the YouTube horror movie community and whatnot and social media horror movie community 
they go for what gets clicks yeah. and what is going to get the most clicks unfortunately is something like exorcist the believer you know yeah. and please david gordon green stop um but there's so much stuff that comes out that people just completely overlook a lot of it's on a lower budgeted end but there's a lot of creative and interesting films that come out uh that i just that i've come across in the past like month and i i think it's a real sad thing where people just want to revisit i mean i love the freddy movies but it's not the only thing out there i guess and i i think some fans are too nostalgic dude there's so much stuff i haven't seen in the 80s you sent me another movie the other day and i'm pretty uh i'll i'll fess up to that i mean like it Maybe that even connects to why I like Cabin in the Woods so much, but yeah, I, I, I am pretty driven okay. by nostalgia with this stuff. That's what was the one you were talking about that I sent you? you? Was that the uh, the, the, the a home invasion movie? It wasn't. It's not a. I don't know if it's a home invasion. WNFU Halloween special. No, not that one. You sent me a home. You okay. sent me a home invasion movie before that. You, you were talking okay, about there's... it. You didn't send it to me. You were talking about it, and I asked you where I could find it, and it was on Tubi. What movie was that? Okay. I'm blanking on which one that was. I've seen so many in the past. It was an 80s movie. Was, I had never heard of it. It was. Oh, Curfew. curfew. Yeah, Curfew with, um, the, the, uh, what's his name? Uh, not one of the Brady Bunch. Yeah, kids Peter Brady. Peter and Kylie Richards from the original Halloween and Watcher in the Woods. And, and I had it's never heard movie. of that movie before. That's what I'm saying. There's so much stuff. Like hey, people get asking, yeah, there's so much older stuff and newer I, stuff. There's a whole there's world, a whole there, world you know? that I haven't seen that's literally at my fingertips now, or at all of our fingertips right now. So I hear people say, like, what new bands are you listening to? I was like, dude, I don't know. There's so many old ones that I can finally hear all of the music now. I never owned Led Zeppelin II back in the day. <laughs> you know what I mean? I never gave a shit about certain Steely Dan records that are now at my disposal. Um but someone asked how we like Tucker and Dale. People get mad at me for talking about Tucker and Dale too much. I think Tucker and Dale was genius. And I think I love Tucker it was the Dale. beginning of this silly horror comedy stuff that I fucking love. Um, I love all the horror, horror comedy stuff. Um, but in search of tomorrow, if you guys haven't seen, it, if you guys are science fiction fans. Um, yeah, I've watched, I, I watched a little bit of that uh, a few really? years ago. Really? In the same way that I watched In Search of Darkness movies, like I, I watched like half an hour of it or something. But like oh. I really enjoyed what I watched. Yeah. Yeah, you're never gonna watch it all. But when my house guests were here, literally, he's sitting down with a piece of paper, writing down movies. He's like, dude, I've never seen this. Oh my god, I've never seen this. This looks so good. I've never seen this. This looks so good. There's just so many movies. In Search of Darkness, one through three, and someone said sadly one is not available for streaming anymore. Um. They go over like almost every horror movie from the 80s, even all the direct-to-video releases, like Video Dead and stuff like that. It's not just cult classics. It's not just movies that you see a lot of these um, people that talk about rarely seen horror movies talk about. There's just movies most we've never talked about. So check that series out. It's really, really good. Definitely, if you like Nightmare on Elm Street, if you haven't seen Never Sleep Again, it's about four and a half hours. But they go through every single movie in the series. Do they go through Freddy vs. Jason in that? I believe they do. I know they go. They even go through Freddy's nightmares on that. Yes, so. they do. They go through everything because I think it comes out in 2009. So yeah, they definitely, they definitely yeah, do that. Yeah. There's also, there's also, uh, if you guys are Friday the 13th fans, they, there's a, a, 
Camp Crystal Lake or Crystal Lake? Or Crystal, Lake Crystal Lake Memories, yeah. and then his name was Jason was the other but one. Crystal yeah. Lake Memories is about three and a half hours, four hours long as well. Right. It goes through all of the movies with all the actors. If you guys want to see these movies, hear about scripts that never made it and stuff like that. And then also there's a great YouTube channel called uh, Joe Blow Horror. Is Joe Bob Briggs behind that channel at all, JG? No, 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 no. Joe, Joe Blow is its own thing. Who are those guys? I don't know all the people involved. And I think John Squares is one of the editors at Joe Blow. Or maybe he's bloody disgusting. I get them mixed up. Yeah, he's bloody disgusting. But, Joe Blow Horror is probably yeah. one of the best um, channels about just movies in, in general. Um, if you guys are interested in this kind of stuff, the people that take shorter dives into these things <laughs> right. and don't have these three hour long streams, but thank you guys for hanging out with us. I was going to recommend something since you're, you're, you're plugging some horror stuff. Um, next week I should be having on my show, the people who made this really campy sort of trauma esque movie called murder size, which is exactly what you think it is. It's like an eighties homage to both Death campy horror mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and aerobics, but uh, that's a really fun one. And uh, there's this guy by the name of Jay Burleson, uh, who just made two movies back to back. The third Saturday in October, part five, <laughs> and then the third Saturday in October. You have to watch the fifth one and then the other one. That's the order they came out in. But if you like these low budget '80s slasher movies, he basically does the perfect send up of them, and they're both on Tubi. Third Saturday in October is uh, a lot of fun if you like 80s slasher movies. Tubi is free, and it has all the Charles Bronson movies he did for canon. And that movie Murder Size is also on Tubi, I should say. So there's a lot of stuff out there. So, Ben, if you don't have Tubi on your American television, Uh. you should be definitely watching Tubi because you can watch all of the Charles Bronson and movies you have to watch including ten to midnight and to midnight and kinjate forbidden subjects <laughs> kinjate it's there tubi's good shutter's good thank you guys for hanging out with us talking horror tomorrow i'll be back here at 9 a.m my time uh i will be doing some writing once i'm done with this for the script for tomorrow where we'll be talking about women in hip-hop is contemporary hip-hop over sexualizing women i do not look forward to that show <laughs> just because i don't want to say the wrong thing yeah. <laughs> ben's like i don't believe you. <laughs> well uh you know, I've just heard too many of the things you do say to believe that. <laughs> I'm very excited. Uh, Toussaint put this show together for tomorrow, and we have a hip-hop journalist coming on to to have this conversation with us, and who was also female, so it won't be a boys' club. So get ready for lots of this. There you go. There you go. So thank you guys and have a good night. We. <laughs> I'm reading you guys' comments. We are.
social right publics. And they'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers. They have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government.